Originally a cheap, plentiful, and man-made substitute for ivory, celluloid, one of the earliest of plastics, made its way into the manufacture of novelties. But it had one serious defect. It could burn. Welcome to the Kill It With Fire podcast, where each episode, a group of creative practitioners and academics from different disciplines, takes a look at cult, neglected or overlooked motion pictures from the last few decades of celluloid, when movies were films. Love and murder, the first time is always the hardest. That's the tagline for the film that we're going to discuss today, which is Delusion, directed by Carl Colpiat, released in 1991. Um, I say released... Uh, released in the US, but I don't think this ever got a, a, a UK release uh, at all. Um, I think it's had a release in a few other territories, but not in the UK, uh, officially. Um, I think the first time it was shown here was on television, but we'll probably come on to that a bit later. Um, I think before we begin properly, we need to sort of extend our thanks uh, to uh, Carl Culpiat, the film's director, uh, Geza Sinkovich, the film's director of photography, and Mark Allen Kaplan, the film's editor, who very graciously and very kindly um, put up with my sort of uh, uh, approaches, you know, for for uh, questions and, uh, and and graced us with some uh, uh, very detailed answers. So I'd like to say sort of thank you to uh, the personnel there. Um, round of introductions, chaps. Do you want to begin, Mark? Yes, uh, I am Mark Hall, and I am um, here. That's about it. That's <laughs> much say for me. <laughs> Um, I, I'm you are a, much more than here. <laughs> yes, I'm. Um, I, I pretend to be a writer and a, a student of education. Um, but most, mo- the, the most important thing about me is that I'm tired. I think <laughs> that's <laughs> about it. Yeah. <laughs> we can all agree with that. Exhaustion. Yeah. Uh, Peter, would you like to go next? Um, yeah, what well, Peter True, um, lecturer, writer, uh, and I'm also. I'm also here. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul Lewis, writer, photographer, lecturer, lecturer, um, unrepentant cinephile. I like that one. <laughs> um, I'm completely unrepentant about my love for cinema. Um, uh, has anybody had any sort of interesting ex- film-related experiences since the last meeting, Mac? Film-related experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, just, oh. <laughs> just no, just this one really. This is yeah. I think this is the only film I've watched since um, um, since since last time. Um, I don't I don't really get a chance to to watch films much, so it's it, it's nice doing this now where I can. It's an excuse to sit down and watch and you know, be introduced to a film I've I've not seen before. So yeah, this is this is the only film experience I've had since we last last met. Um, well, I uh, we watched uh, the Wonder Woman, um, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, uh, I don't think it was as bad as people made it out to be. There were some clanging moments that were terrible, but it, it was uh, interesting. Um, but I, I suppose the main one was uh, revisiting talk radio for the last episode, which unfortunately I missed. Um, but yeah, revisiting a a, a good old favourite. Um, absolutely adore that film. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I had um, I'm, I, last week I wrote a piece about um, Fred Burnley's 1972 horror film, Neither the Sea Nor the Sand, 
based on Gordon Honeycomb's novel of 1969. Gordon Honeycomb, those of us of a certain age will probably recall he was one of ITN's most loved newsreaders. Um, you're far too young, Mark. You, you, you might be too young to remember Gordon Honeycomb, uh, Peter. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was interest, interesting to revisit that. And um, I also pitched last week a piece for a publication about one of my favourite British horror films, which is it's just coming into its... 50th anniversary this year like you had to think about that um and um that was picked up so i'll I'll reveal a bit more about that probably at a later date but uh, i've been i've been watching that i've watched that three times (laughs) in preparation over the past week in preparation for writing this article Uh, yeah i'm quite excited about that but anyway moving swiftly on um talk about delusion First encounters. I think I know how this is going to go, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, Mark, what was your first encounter with Delusion? I watched it last night. <laughs> um, now, yeah, just just for this, to be honest, I've never I've never heard of it until it was brought up for this purpose. So, um, literally, just very very recently, watched it for the first time. Yeah, I, th- I think given its absence, it's not available. It's never been released. It wasn't released theatrically in the UK, I'm pretty sure. Um, it never had a video release, I don't think, over here. Um, the first time... <clears throat> I, sorry, Pete, I'm stepping on your toes. The first time I encountered it was via, when it was shown on the BBC, BBC One and BBC Two late night. It'd been 93 or 94, I think, because I, I'd seen Carl Sikor in um, Homicide Life on the Street, which was shown over here about, I think, 93, 94. So it's probably around about that time. And I recognised Carl Sikorsky as Tim Bayliss from Homicide. And, um, you know, uh, after that, I imported the US tape, videotape, which is a full screen tape. The TV screen was full screen uh, as well. Um, and um, I think it had a laser disc release in the States. I know it had a laser disc release in the States. Um it's never been available. I don't, as far as I know, it's not been available on any digital home video platform, DVD, Blu-ray, or, or streaming. Um, so you know, I can sort of see why you might not have heard of it um, because it's 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 it's. I think it's been shown on TV two or three times, maybe over here in the past sort of thirty years. Um, but yeah, Pete, Pete, sorry, I, I stepped on your toes. That's okay. That's okay. Now again, yeah, again, the first first time um, encountered with it. Um, interesting because uh, the 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 cover image for it um, just made me instantly think of um, I, I don't know if anyone will know this Ever Smile New Jersey film with Daniel Day Lewis uh, directed by that- Carlos Sorin. Um, he he plays a traveling dentist um, travels South America on a motorcycle. Um, Promoting the Ever Smile Foundation um, of Dentistry, a very strange <laughs> film. It's it, and it, it's 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 absolutely wonderful. But it it's um, that the the cover art, and I think it 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 bores through to the rest of the film. The the sort of um, my first impressions um, from from the, the the cover of this quirky um, desert located sort of thing. So uh, yeah, it was completely. Um, completely fresh to it the only thing uh the only thing that's familiar looking at the director was his uh, producer of hurley burley which um it's a great film uh, but yes yeah this was my first um, encounter with, with, the, with the film 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurley Burley, 1998. Yeah, Sean Penn, Kevin Space, Chaz Palminteri. Um, yeah, yeah, based on David Rabe's play, wasn't it? Um, I'd forgotten about that, actually, Peter. It's, fun, it's funny that you mentioned that because I'd completely forgotten about that. Um, uh, yeah, well, probably come, probably come on to uh, Cineville uh, maybe a bit later as a production company. Um, would anybody like to offer a synopsis? Mac, would you like to? Um, yeah, sure. So the um, film opens with 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 much business talk and business meetings, um, where um, a gentleman is seen to be em- embezzling funds um, to go and start a, a new computer-based company. Um, funds with which then he goes and uh, drives through the desert with to go to Reno. Um, he picks up a couple of um, people who seem to have been in an accident um, who reminded me very much of the, um, you know, the couple who robbed the diner in Pulp Fiction. Mm, yes, yeah. Them too. Um, and then they drive through the desert and things get a little bit more serious when, um, um, when, when the gentleman would like them out of his car, says, here's the state line, you know, get out, you know, I'm not taking you no further. And then guns come out, very shiny guns, um, which I, ex- <laughs> I expected. I expected to see a close up of that handgun, and it say either Montague or Capulet on it. Um, I, 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 I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on handguns. I have to say, but uh, are, are they not like um, um, high caliber, fifty cal, or something like a Desert Eagle or something like that? Isn't it? I yeah. Think. I think it, was it a nine eleven? I think. It, it 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 was it, it was shown having a silencer in terms of the sound, but it didn't have a silencer. That's yeah, that got me. Yeah, because every time he shoots, he's got that sort of silenced, you know, Pierce Brosnan James Bond silence noise. And but it's it it hasn't got a silencer on the gun, has it? No. And the the noise it makes when he cocks it is much louder than when he shoots it. <laughs> That's so, a small, a small, a small. <laughs> yes, it's yes, it's just a small annoyance. But then, um, yes, they they drive through uh, what seems to be Tatooine for uh, the for the the rain <laughs> of the film. Um, yeah, and then it turns out that the guy Chevy is um, a hitman working for Mister Sales, um, who has to kill someone out in the desert, and then because um, um, because O'Brien's a loose end he has to kill him as well but then he ends up surviving in the desert um all along for the ride is um is 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 the lovely patty who i feel quite sorry for um patty's the heart of the film isn't she i think yeah yeah i really I, i really liked her as a character and i felt quite sorry for her and um she's sort of just trying to get away and then she makes uh, escape at the end with the final standoff when uh, he's discovered that he's got 450 grand in the boots of the car um but yeah that was sort of a, a meandering synopsis of it really oh that, that was fine fine mark pete did you have uh, another one that might cast a different light on it or no no i think you know i could i could read from the imdb page but uh, i think all the details were there yeah i mean i, I just i think uh, mark's was perfect i think um, I would just sort of emphasise it's Christmas, isn't it, as well? Which is oh, yes. Of, uh, yeah. um, something that we only sort of realise when Chevy comes out of that uh, gas station with a, a sort of a sprig, an evergreen sprig. And, well, there is a Christmas um, tree in the opening sequence. There is, actually, in the, the office, background. But, yeah. but it seems like they're taking it down rather than putting it up. 
Um, but you've got a corporate buyout. You've got the the company that uh, George O'Brien, Jim Metzler's character, works for has been bought by new corporate owners, bigger owners, if you like. And they put a halt to that long-term project, that five-year-long um, uh, computer project. Computer hardware, isn't it, that, that George has been um, heading up. Um, and George decides to steal money from the company with a bit, bit of creative accounting. I talked about creative timetabling <laughs> earlier, didn't I? Um, maybe, maybe this film's influenced me. It stops being a crime when you put the word creative in front of it. It does indeed, yes, yes. Um, like someone is creative surgery. Yeah. But at one point, George says to another character, I think it's when, when they're sitting quite comically in that, is it? Uh, yeah, I was, was going to say about I was going to say about that, that maybe that was the inspiration for uh, the, the film the film version of American Psycho. It's like it's like yeah. that that version of of that <laughs> that business uh, lifestyle. It was it's uh, that co- yeah. co- co- corporate milieu, isn't it? You know, yeah. I think it was uh, very much prevalent in the eighties. I think it's quite very dryly comic, and they've got the the mud masks on, haven't they? And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he, he says he says uh, oh nobody'll know. You know, the company's that mm. big. Nobody cares what anybody else is doing. And I think there's a there's a strong sense, and I'll come back to some comments that, that Colby made a bit later um, through the emails, but uh, there's a strong sense of, of a very sat- strong satire of, of sort of the corporate mentality, I think, isn't there? And, and how 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 much that parallels sort of criminal endeavours and organised crime. But anyway, we'll come, we'll come back to that a bit later. Um, but George decides to steal the money with a bit of creative accounting and drive it in cash in his car to Reno, uh, um, with the aim of, of sort of meeting his colleagues there and continuing work on 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 this uh, project that's been halted by the corporation, there's a car accident uh, which uh, George witnesses. He stops to help. It's it's Chevy Carlsecor's character and Patty, played by Jennifer Rubin, um, who who turn out to be a hitman, and his brash girlfriend. She's a, a nightclub dancer, she's a cabaret dancer. Um, and George picks them up. Um, things gradually become more tense. Chevy leads them to his uh, mentor, Larry Jerry Orbach, um, who spends his days in exile in the caravan by a lake. Feels very biblical, that I think, doesn't it? And um, and uh, it turns out that, that Chevy's been sent by uh, Sales, Mr. Sales, uh, Robert Costanzo, to uh, um, whack. I think the, the term is trade. <laughs> Uh, Larry, <laughs> I've, I've never done it. I've never mixed with the hitmen, but you know I do believe the same whack, don't they? Um, they sleep with the fishes. He sleeps with the fishes. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, there's a there's there's a couple of Godfather references, isn't there? There's that line that Chevy keeps repeating about it's not personal, it's, it's just business. It's business. Which a, yeah, which is a line that uh, Michael says in in uh, the Godfather, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't know, would I, Paul? Have you not seen The Godfather, Peter? Oh, no, I, mean, I confessed that on the last episode. Yeah, right? yeah, I'd forgotten. Yeah, yeah, I've just remembered. Um, oh. It's sort of Gross Point Blank as well. That reminded me of that, because obviously I, I haven't seen Godfather, but uh, Gross Point Blank, that's the uh, the mantra there as well. It's not when, me. Yeah, it's when, when you watch The Godfather, you go, ah, now the, the past 40 years of film, or 50 years, is it now <laughs> film history? All falls into place. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> and then I know it's got something that, to do with oranges, isn't it? Yeah, there's oranges. There's, there's some wine. <laughs> there's Marlon Brando. Is it it's a good film? Marlon, it's about, it's it's about, about a horse. It's about a, it's a horse, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry, uh, No, it's all right. 
But um, um, actually, now that you mentioned, there's that new cut of The Godfather Three that's been released, doesn't it? Which I, I, keep, I need to see. Actually, thinking about it. But uh, um, but following the assassination of Larry, uh, it becomes a dispute over the money that, that George has uh, embezzled, which uh, Patty finds in the vehicle. Um, Chevy's unaware of this, I think, until right at the end, isn't he? Um, and then we, we sort of end with that, that wonderful Mexican standoff um, in the, the sort of desert town. Um, you mentioned Mark um, Tarantino, didn't you? Yes. And, uh, this is sort of pre-Tarantino, isn't it? This is kind of, uh, this is 91 was the year that Reservoir Dogs was released, I think. And, and uh, <clears throat> you know, there's that, uh, I, th- I think what's probably common about it is that that lovers on the run thing, subgenre. Mm-hmm. Which had been around since the sort of film noir days, possibly even before. But you've got uh, Joseph H. Lewis's Gun Crazy, which is a sort of classic film noir, Poverty Row film noir in the fifties. Um, you know, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, obviously, the story, you know, the true story predates that. Um, and then in the sixties, you've got Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, and you've got, um, you know, uh, uh, in that that just after Delusion, you've got the you've got True Romance course haven't you natural born killers and, and you, so that that lovers on the run uh subgenre if you like i think is what this sort of taps into which is love the lovers on the run thing is it's part road movie part noir isn't it i think very often um and, and you mentioned pulp fiction you mentioned the, the dinosaur scene didn't you that yeah they, they remind me sort of those because of this sort of <clears throat> sonar that chevy has in the car sort of pre you know the moment that the gun comes out he sort of plays a bit of a, not a buffoon necessarily, but he's quite flaky, isn't he? And he's quite sort of um, overly congenial. Like, I sort of, I, I made a note of, uh, of of Chevy's early sort of presentation. It's like, Chevy belongs to the school of subtlety called making it clear that you're a bad guy whilst, whilst saying innocuous things, you yeah. know? <laughs> I've, I've tried perfecting that, but it doesn't quite work. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that it's there's a bit of Bonnie and Clyde, isn't there? So Chevy and, and, and Patty, um, and uh, and I, th- I think that's what it taps into, which is why it reminds you of that Bonnie and Clyde type scene that opens Pulp Fiction. Um, I think that because Pulp Fiction was ninety four, was it ninety four? Pulp Fiction ninety three, ninety four. Um, Jennifer Rubin starred in a film. I think it was a parody of Pulp Fiction called Plump Fiction. She was in that as well. Yes, I think. Yeah, yeah. That rings a bell. Um, uh, but, but yeah, became became a, became a sort of a thing in the the mid nineties again. Lovers on the Run, uh, some genre. Um, so in, in terms of personnel, uh, did any of you sort of look into the person? I mean, you mentioned Cole Pierce's work as a producer, Pete. Mm. I think early barely and uh, and so on. Did you sort of look into uh, any of the, the personnel? Uh, no, no. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Colpert seems, uh, seems uh, quite spread out between the different roles, doesn't he? The director, writer, producer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Colpert was, was born in Belgium. He gradu- graduated from the American Film Institute in '84, and founded Cineville, which is a production and distribution company. And Cineville produced, um, of course, Delusion, um, but they also produced um, 
uh, Alison Anders, Gas Food Lodging, and uh, Mivida Loca, which are superb films, both of those, Gas Food Lodging, I think particularly uh, very sort of celebrated, quite rightly so. Um, and Colpert's first film as a director, first feature, I should say, sorry, uh, yeah. was In the Aftermath, which, which used footage from uh, a 1985 anime, um, Angel's Egg, um, and spliced it in with uh, live action footage that Colpert shot, and that was uh, that was made for New World Pictures. Um, uh, but Delusion kind of because that's a, a, not a portmanteau film, but a composite, really, I suppose. Delusion's his first sort of true feature debut. Um, uh, he followed it, followed it up, followed it up, sorry, with with the crew, uh, which reworked the basic premise of Delusion. Uh, you know, people picking up bad people on a journey um, uh, with a, a group of young people on a boat that pick up a, a couple in trouble who, who terrorise them. And, and that sort of... Uh, you might have seen... You might have read the book, you might have seen the film Charles Williams' Dead Cam, which was made into a film in the... around about the time of Delusion with um, Sam Neill and uh, Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane. You know, the couple on the yacht that pick up uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like that of, you know, uh, Polanski's Knife in the Water, which I think was loosely based on on the novel Dead Cam by Charles Williams. So the the crew's a bit like that, um, uh, you know. And from there, we've got um, you know, obviously Facade in '99 and Drowning on Dry Land, The Affair in 2004, GI Jesus, and Black Limousine in in 2010, which I think is to date his most recently released film. Uh, that was quite interesting, Black Limousine. Um, I haven't seen it in about 10 years, but uh, I remember liking it when I saw it. Um, we've got uh, the script was sort of co-written with Kate Boss, um, who mm. was uh, who's known for his collaborations largely with Alison Anders. And um, uh, uh, Sikovic, as the director of photography, has got quite a sort of varied career, I think. He's quite quite an interesting career. You know, Seven Ties, that, that Oliver Reed horror film. Um, which I don't think so. Again, it's another one that's never been released on DVD. I, I think um, you know stuff like The Last Seduction Two with Joan Sevens, fairly varied genres, but but um, always consistently well shot. And I think Delusion is very well shot. I think particularly well photographed, and also Bad Moon Without Red in in '96 he photographed. What about the cast? I know you were you 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 picked up Pete, didn't you, when you saw Jerry Orbach? Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. That for for me that and it's interesting. I mean, even you know, it was. I'm sure it's all it's all intentional. The that really tangible um, echoing of of those noir films. You know, it even gives him the hat. You know, the hat yeah. is it just it all just screams 1950s, 60s black and white America. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. He's, he just exudes that he's got this past and that is is from this this old way of of doing things so so perfectly. Yeah, and I think you know that caravan by the lake and, and yeah. sort of you know barbecuing steaks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's all, it's all... <laughs> his, his big objection to being um, whacked is that it's a waste of a waste of good steak. Yeah, yeah. it's a porterhouse, isn't it? It's a porterhouse, yeah. Well, at, least, at least let me finish my steak first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Orbach's got such a varied career. I mean, I, I sort of grew up with um, Law and Order. I was an avid watcher of, of Law and Order, which he, he wasn't in until, I think, season three, thereabouts. 
Um, but uh, I was an avid watcher of Law and Order in the 90s. And, um, but, uh, you know, he's got such a varied career way before that, of course, and had uh, such a uh, sort of a, a, a recognisable, a character actor, but very recognisable character actor, I think, isn't he, Orbach? Um, uh, what about the, the other performances? We've got uh, Metzler, Sikor, uh Rubin. It was really interesting um, what you're saying about uh, Rubin as as Patty, um, that she was the heart of the of the film. Because um, for for me, she, I mean, maybe towards the end, but there were there were bits in it that it that it just didn't gel for me. Um, in you know that that she seemed to be there was a couple of key moments where she. The film was making an obvious point of presenting her as someone special, someone you know, like a, a you know, it's, some sort of delicate flower or something that was you know, the, where she sort of uh, the, the the two men are fighting and she's sort of staring out of the the back of the car, um, sort of with tears in her eyes, and we sort of focus on that, and and then there's another moment where the two men are fighting again, uh, and she's sort of dancing wildly to the to the music sort of thing um um did, where is it yeah moments that appeared to attempt uh to show an extra depth to her character um which for me di- uh, didn't seem to work it seemed to fall flat for me um i saw i didn't buy into that character until until later on um, in the the motel, and she sort of starts to share her failure of of being intimate with anyone, and no one touches me, no one's ever touched me, sort of thing. Um, but some of those earlier moments, she she struck me as a bit annoying. Um, but it's really interesting to to hear that it wasn't the case with everyone. Yeah, I think uh, as, as the narrative goes on, she sort of reveals hidden depths, doesn't she? I think. And- you, you mentioned that that fight fight scene in the car, and, and um, it's interesting that um, Sinkovich sort of raised that. Um, I, I, I sort of asked the question as to the extent to which the the film was story, how closely was it storyboarded, and um, Sinkovich says that uh, you know in that scene where Chevy and George are fighting in the back of the car, Patty's hitting the steering wheel trying to ignore the fight. I think that's the scene you mentioned, Peter, isn't it? I think that's the one. Mm. Well, and, there's two uh, different ones, yeah. But Sinkovich said, uh, quoted, we were planning to cover the fight in a classical way and cut back to her, but it was too late in the afternoon and there wasn't any time left. So they they decided to stay with Patty, uh, keeping her in the foreground and show the two in the background instead of cutting back, you know, shooting enough coverage to cut back and forth between them. And um, Sinkovich said that it turned out the best that was the best way to show what's happening in one shot coverage on the fight was not necessary. So that was that's quite interesting because that that was something that was uh, improvised if you like on set if you like um um you know and i think it there's a lot of those kind of shots that keep patty in the center um i mean metaphorically as well as sort of literally in terms of the photography that uh reinforce her role <coughs> position if you like as the um the witness to this sort of battleground between these two men um if that makes sense mm. you know that sort of patties in the patties our eyes into sort of the squabbles between George and Chevy. Um, and I know you 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 struggled with the first sort of twenty minutes, Pete, until you mm. got to um, yeah uh, Jerry Orbach in the caravan. 
I suppose um, I was I was worried a little bit that she was going to be presented as uh, because she was in in some way quirky or emotionally damaged. You know, th- there's an assumption there at the beginning. And to, like I say, I think it it plays through well um, by the um, towards the end at the motel and stuff. That maybe if we'd had something like that earlier on, it it, it wouldn't have. Um, sort of sat uneasy with me uh, but there was a worry that she was just being presented as quirky or somehow emotionally d- damaged you know there was a depth to her that that somehow exonerated her from her behavior sort of thing that that idea of i think it's in uh, as good as it gets jack nicholson film where he describes writing for women <clears throat> as um, uh, i take a man and i remove all um all accounts of reason sense of reason and accountability yeah um that that she was just going to be presented as being able to do whatever she ends up doing um just because she's got some undisclosed depth to her or quirkiness to her you know she's got short hair and you know she wears a flowery dress or something and 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 dances to music you know therefore sorry pete no no I was just going to say, I think I think what you're sort of referring to is that manic pixie dream girl yes. phenomenon, isn't yes. it? Yeah, yeah. And um, yes. I think you, you sort of you, you feel the, the sort of the classic mole. You get that, don't you, from the the introduction of uh, Chevy and and, uh, and Patty. But uh, as as she evolves, she evolves into a much more complex character. Absolutely, yeah. Which is very. I mean, one of the things that Colpert said <coughs> in the um, conversation that we had via email was that. Uh, it's very much a the film is very much a European's idea of the West. It, it feels the American West that is, and it feels um, very much a sort of a European art film convention, doesn't it? That you've got characters that evolve in that way. Um, I think it, it's not. Uh, I think you can look at this film. <clears throat> it's not a particularly Hollywood film. I think it feels much more like a European sort of uh, art movie with a, an American setting. And uh, I mean, perhaps another way. Pete, you know, you could restructure that narrative slightly and start with Patty, um, which would anchor Patty's sort of presence in the film and have mm. a series of flashbacks. That, that's perhaps another way of sort of structuring that narrative. Um, I don't know, what, what did you think about uh, uh, Patty, Rubin's performance as Patty, Mark? Well, for the first sort of maybe half of the film, she just struck me as being there. You know what yeah. I mean? Like she didn't. She didn't seem to me to have that much overly to do with the plot. Um, and there were times where I was not necessarily annoyed by her inclusion, but there was times where I was thinking, what, what is she adding here? Um, and it, it, it's like with you two, as it, obviously, as it goes on, you realise that she is, um, she's more of a character. She is a character in her own right, isn't she? And um, she does have some... Obviously, some, she accuses Chevy of having emotional problems, doesn't she, quite early yes, on in the film, yeah. when she quite clearly has emotional problems of her own. Yes. And um, well, I think they all do, don't they? Oh, the- yeah. they. Oh, yeah. Each one of them absolutely has you know, some sort of mental, emotional issue. Um, but then as the film goes on, I, I start to sort of sympathise with her a bit and, and feel a bit sorry for her because she's... Um, she seems to be sort of stuck in a rut of she's with Chevy and she's just she's rather than leaving him 
she's trying to sort of anchor him and change him yeah uh, into what she wants from a relationship and as a person so that's when when she does manage to find her out you know she finds the money and she buys the ticket um and you know i feel quite happy for her in the end because i have come to feel a bit sorry for her especially with the scene where obviously chevy returns and um he slaps her about a bit and then there's the scene on the bed as well um yeah, yeah, the, the rape scene, which um, yeah, yeah, which that's um, really unpleasant. It's not graphic, it's not explicit. Um, it's, but it's, it's, the, all... it's you see the look on her face, though, don't you? And and you see the disgust in her, in her eyes and the pain in her eyes, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. interesting as well because you, you think maybe that you know when she discloses to um, earlier that she's never. Uh, been reached by a man you know she's never achieved orgasm and things like that that you know when she first says that you think oh maybe there's something quirky wrong with her physically or something but then when that scene happens you you think well maybe that's all her encounters with men have been like that there's there's no that's why she's not been moved emotionally or physically by men because it's all been in that environment and in that way you know yeah it's it's sort of Leads you to believe that she's lived her life thus far, thinking that she's got to have some sort of male presence in in her life to um, to be worth anything. And then when she, you know, when she manages to get in the car on her own, and then you know she stops by the she stops by the side of them, doesn't she? She says, "Oh, you know, is anyone going to come with me?" And none of them do. And she's like, "All right, whatever," and she drives off. It's sort of it's nice because you know she's managed to sort of realize that she can do what she wants and she can be on her own and she'll and she'll succeed yeah and then yeah. it also makes you feel sorry for her again because she's driving away at this sort of pivotal you know climax of the film and um then she's just driven out and forgotten about it, isn't she yeah again that leads you back to the start of the film where you think well what was it necessary to have her there yeah well the camera follows her point of view doesn't it she Mm. leaves um chevy and and george behind Mm. and um and and, uh i'll I'll come back to that ending i think a bit later because uh, you know some interesting stuff came out in the interviews with colby and sinkovich about the end of the film Um, a couple of interesting things with it you know i mean she she starts like I, th- I think you're right you know that that relationship she's got with men that um um uh, uh, you know reliance and 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 we see her developing towards the end where, where she just questions chevy's pronunciation of um of the mexican <laughs> cancun yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> that's, that's in the views yeah. isn't it yeah that's that's <laughs> when she really stands up that's when she sort of starts to change and sort of sees an alternative maybe uh, but but also i think mention it just mentioning that that bit where she asks uh, who's going to come with me i remember watching that and thinking why would they go with you know <laughs> this, whether i missed something but it's like does she really expect either of them to care about her enough to go with her um, I, think the, I think the point is, Pete, that, they, that you've got these two guys that are sort of toxic men in in the modern parts that are, that are duking it out over a suitcase full of money, and she present, represents something more positive. You might say something more human, and 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 there's that. It's it's. It, I think it's very symbolic. You know, she's sort of uh, she. <clears throat> they're both 
tell her at that point to bring the bag of money to them, and she says, "You two figure it out." She's exasperated. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, uh, she... Chevy, Chevy says to her, "Sorry, Pete." Chevy says to her, "Where are you going?" And Patty says, "Leaving." Chevy says, "You'll not do this to me," which connects to earlier in that rape scene, which is, um, uh, as I say, is, is really unpleasant. But um, you know, when, when Chevy says to her, um, "I'm just getting the line." Where's the line? After his, it's all sort of sweaty close-ups of faces, and I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a deliberately unpleasant rape scene. Um, yeah, and he, he not, tells her that he needs her, doesn't he? he can't work yeah, he says, or something like that, isn't it? He says, he says, don't, don't ever leave me. And at the end, she does, doesn't she? Of course. Mm. Um, mm. And he's, Chevy says, you'll not do this to me. And Patty says, oh, I see. It's you that it's being done to. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then she says, any of you guys coming with me? I know it's a tough decision, a real tough one. It's a lot of money, but I just want to see how much you guys care for me. And it's sort of, you know, like I say, symbolically, it's that uh, it's that sort of sense. I don't know if any of you read when I was at school. We had, we had the school library, and they used to go in there at playtimes, and we had a copy of Robert Andrews' The Territorial Imperative from the late 60s. I don't know if any of you have read that. No, no. Well, basically, it's kind of it's a book that suggests it was very influential on Sam Peckinpah, as <clears throat> a filmmaker that I'm very interested in. in some way. I've got a book project that, that's about Peckinpah that, that, that might be on the cards, but um, it, it's very much an idea that uh, all behaviour, and by that idea means all male behaviour, is sort of dictated by territory and ownership. And I think you get that at the end of the mm. illusion because these two guys are. It's about the ownership of Patty, because you know. Um, George uh, sleeps with her um, elliptically. It, it sort of cuts away. Mm, she says, yeah. uh, "She says I've never had an orgasm. Does your wife have, have orgasms?" And and, uh, and she says, I, "I want an orgasm for Christmas." Mm-hmm. I say that it sounds awfully like uh, Kenneth Williams, doesn't it? The carry on from "I want an orgasm for Christmas," <laughs> and um, George says to her, "Well, ask Santa." You know, yeah. uh, I think it's a wonderful line. And then it, it sort of cuts to Chevy, I think, in Las yeah, Vegas. Prob- yeah. And, and there's the implication that you know George and Patty have slept together, and um, and then Chevy comes in and he obviously he's got to assert his ownership of mm. Patty by raping her, mm. and 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 it, likewise it's the same with the money, isn't it? The squabbling over the money. So that it's very, <clears throat> I mean we use that term toxic masculinity these days, don't we? But I think that's you know I don't think that wasn't the term that that you heard in '91, but I think that's very much what it's about, and and and, and uh, Patty is is just another. Like a toy, a, a piece mm. of land, a bit of territory, if you like, over which these two very sort of toxic men, materialistic men, squabble. Yeah. And um, what she's saying, I, I want to see how much you guys care for me, but they care more for the money than they do for a woman, which is, kind of, I think that's the point. Maybe mm. it's a bit of a clumsy way of expressing it, Mac, but I can sort of see the point that's being made, I think. I think yeah, there that's... is there is that element where, where she leaves, and it. I, where she she's basically sort of saying, "I'll leave you boys to it." You know, I'm I'm out yeah. of the game now. Um, you you carry on with this, and I'm I'm off. Yeah, it, it sort of shows that you know that it's it's a broadly held uh, theory that you know women mature much quickly than men. Um, which to be fair, which yeah. to be fair, before we started recording, I did notice that you were in a Minecraft t-shirt, Peter. So yep, and uh, and Marvel um, pajama bottoms. Well. <laughs> you know so, what? I've got I've got I've got a, a Wayland Utani hoodie on. It's cold in the house, so I've I'm got sat a, next to a, a Lego a... Batmobile. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've just proven the point. I think it is a very fair point to say that women possibly mature earlier than men. 
And given that, um, obviously, um, Pat is very young, isn't she? She's a lot younger, I feel, than than Chevy she, and George. She, she feels it through her behaviour, doesn't she? I think. Yeah, but she she makes the more mature decision at the end, doesn't she? Is to not fight over the money and just to remove herself from that you know n- nasty situation that she's in. Exactly. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So I think it's it's a positive it's a positive aspect of her character that she comes across as as the mature one. Yeah, and and, and there's also that um, that moment where she's described as a, a piece of ass, isn't it, by um, uh, Robert Costanzo um, Sales when <coughs> um, uh, uh, Chevy goes to Vegas and he speaks to Costanzo and and the sort of the talk about Patin and. Uh, you know, Sales says, excuse me, he points out that he's, he's slept with Patty too. The assumption might be that she's his former mom. And he says, men who lay the same piece of ass can call each mm. other by their first name. And um, uh, we might come on to Costanza a bit later, actually, because, you know, I think there's more to say about that scene. But uh, <clears throat> again, it's asserting that male dominance and ownership into all the way it through because yeah. he, he yeah. sort of tricks him at the end doesn't he Get, gets him to call him by his first name and then at the end it's like it's mr mr sales you dickhead or something i, I, I think it's a it's a great scene that i mean it, it feels very <clears throat> we've got the the corporate world at the start that george is in, which is very ruthless and, and, and he talks about um hiring and firing doesn't he and, and he uses the term oh what does he use the term for sort of letting people go What's the word? But it's, it's very, it's very, it's very violent. The language there, isn't it? You know, the corporate, the corporate space. Um, and then we've got that's paralleled in the scene in Vegas with the uh, um, sales. It's it kind of, it's a gangster, but it's, it's, it's sort of like a corporate head, isn't he? Um, well, again, know, I think. Um, sorry, Paul. Sorry, Pete. Carry on. Well, no, I, I think again, in my attempt to um, get uh, the long goodbye into every podcast we do, um, <laughs> it, it, it this, does, is, this is the uh, the long goodbye with Elliot Gould, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and and again, you you've got um, the, the the scene with Arnold Schwarzenegger in the background uh, where he gets yes, down to yeah. his pants. Um, but again, different <clears throat> methods of asserting. Their control and ownership of the situation and stuff. So it's in, a really interesting sort of comparison with those two ways of doing it, and probably in cinema as a whole, how how you get two men um, in a room that end up how they assert their control and, and things like that. It's an interesting study, I think. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you know, at the start, Cherry's constantly putting Patty down. In, in, um, she says something about can't make she can't make a mind up, and he says uh, that's because you don't got a mind. Yeah. Um, which is a, a wonderful the grammar in that is great, I think. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but her agency develops as a, as the narrative develops, and at one point George comf- when he confronts Patty in the motel, he says, "Whose side are you on?" And she says, "I'm on my own," mm. which thinks very pointed. Um, I mean, it, considering it she me... doesn't say my own side, doesn't she? Doesn't she? She says my own. Yeah, I'm it? on my own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The extent to which she's been sort of abandoned, if you like, or isolated by these two men. Um, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll come back to when we talk about the production side of things, but sort of westerns are a bit of a reference mm. point here. But there's a, <clears throat> I don't know how much you know about westerns, but uh, there was a, a trend in the 60s or the 70s for what were called Zapata westerns, which were westerns which kind of dropped um, a bit like uh, the Wild Bunch or 
Um, there was a, a film called Via Rides with uh, Robert Mitchum, and there was also another um, A Town Called Bastard, which is a great title for a film with um, uh, uh, Robert Shaw and Dudley Sutton. It was a, sort of a weird British, Spanish, German you know, co production in the 70s. It's a shame Sean they, Bean wasn't in that one. Yeah, <laughs> probably too young. Um, but um, but the, these were westerns that featured sort of um, Anglo protagonists dumped into the Mexican Revolution or similar situations mm. where they learn. Uh, there's some spaghetti westerns like it as well, like um, Kian Sabe, the Demiano Demiani, who was a very leftist filmmaker, made Kian Sabe with uh, Gianmaria Volante and Klaus Kinski. But um, these were westerns where. Anglo protagonists very largely were sort of dumped in the Mexican Revolution and, and, and they became politically educated. They became sort of radicalised, you might say. Um, and, and this feels very much, delusion feels much very much like a, a Zapata Western, where instead of you've got an Anglo male protagonist who's educated politically, you've got Patty who's kind of educated as a woman and becomes a sort of a, an autonomous um, woman who asserts her own uh, uh, independence, if you like, at the end of the at the end of the story, and um, you know, Colpert said uh, uh, when I asked this question about the sort of feminist subtext, um, Colpert said that uh, it, it was a conscious element. That the two male characters at the end were so obsessed with their deadly materialistic ideas that they forgot to live. George's blinding desire to succeed. Uh, Patty is the stronger character because she lives by her emotions, and and I think you, by the end of the film you get that. I think, uh, like you say, it's a it's a journey to get there um, because at the start Patty's so objectified, and I wonder if you were going to make delusion today, if, if one were to, if, if someone were to, if as I said earlier, you might start with Patty, and and sort of anchor her presence in the film at the start, and and uh, rather than starting with George because. Uh, George is quite. George, well, I'll come on to this a bit later, maybe. But I think George is as unpleasant as, as Chevy. I think in many ways. Um, I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, I really dislike George. Actually. Yeah. Do you want to sort of clarify, extend that? I mean, we'll talk about Jim Metzler's performance as George and George the character. Um, uh, do you want to sort of expand on that, Mark? I, it's it, it's difficult because obviously he's a. Yeah, I think you're supposed to feel sorry for him because he's been kidnapped and, you know, he's trying to help these people out in the desert in his car that have had the, um, a very interesting-looking crash. And But then you, you need to remember as well that he, you know, he is a criminal. The same, you know, not not necessarily to the same extent as Chevy because he's a murderer, but he's, you know, he, he, he has done something wrong and he's running away from the law as well. And, um... And I don't know, it's just his, his, his manner and um, his reactions to everything. He just comes across as very cold and um, polarised, sort of. Like, he's he's been put in a terrible situation, you know, where he's been kidnapped and, you know, he's, he's, his life's been threatened. And he is told, you know, time and time again that he is going to be executed and he's going to die. And he just sort of takes it all in stride and big reacts to it and I don't I don't understand that like if you know if I was in that situation and someone had told me that I was going to be executed I would be you know as panicked as all hell but he just seems to be like yeah you know what I mean I, I don't know I just can't there's something about him that 
not necessarily creeps me out, but just thinks I just look at him and think I don't like you. Yeah, I, th- I think the fact that he's a he leaves he's, me very cold. Yeah, he's very much a yuppie, isn't he? Jordan? Yeah, yeah. You know, at the start when when he sees that crash, um, it, you know, his, his materialism is sort of signal there where, where he gets out. The first thing he says, I've, I've got a phone I can call for help. He's got this car phone. Yeah, the which car is, phone. I mean, to the young kids, I don't know how well that travels. Um, my daughter, you know, where she's got a phone in the back pocket, I don't know. But, you know, in 1991, yeah, a big, the car phone. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's kind of, um, at one point, Chevy uh, destroys it. Does he cut the cable or something like that? And, and, yes. And, and, and George is really angry about that, isn't he? Um, but it's he's also, you know. It's been broken, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and the fact that, that uh, George has got this fancy car and Chevy, when he gets in, mocks it. He says, what? And I can't do the line. I can't deliver it in the same way that Sicko does. But what did you what did you do to deserve such a fine automobile, George? He says it's sort of t- he's taking the piss. Isn't it, really? yeah. um, and uh, Patty at another point says uh, when she's bargaining with Chevy to to pick another victim, he says he's got a family. And then she goes from there because that doesn't work. She says he's important. He's got a car phone, you know. <laughs> so there's very much this sense that George is a a yuppie, and I think that sort of situates the film. Um, Within or um, in, in sort of in that milieu of the late early nine uh, late eighties early nineties pictures, these yuppie in peril films where you've got these sort of you know upperly mobile middle class professionals that are that are sort of threatened by these. Uh, uh, often it was a very class based, uh, uh, social class based uh, sort of antagonism. You know working class characters, but you've got unlawful entry, haven't you, with. Uh, 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 Ray Liotta, and you've got uh, Pacific Heights with uh, Michael Keaton and um, oh, uh, the actress in Pacific Heights, Peter. Can you remember off the top of my, off the top of your head uh, when, when they're doing up the 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 apartment and they get the, the tenant? It's um, uh, um, it turns out to be a, a, a bit of a, a, a maniac. It's Matthew Modine and um, uh, is it Meg Ryan? Yeah, Matthew, no, Mel, Melanie Griffith, sorry, I get Meg Ryan and Melanie Griffith mixed up, I do apologise. Um, but you've got uh, Bad Influence, which uh, um, you know, is, is, is another one of these European peril films. You've got uh, also Single White Female, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. So you've got the, this kind of, this spate of films in that, that, that period which feature these kind of yuppies that are sort of threatened by these external forces and i think this fits in quite not quite well with that uh subgenre that that milieu if you like with george and the impact that chevy has on his life so pete you're going to say well, something just say it's interesting with like uh mark was saying about his reaction to the situation and things maybe it's that that sense of arrogance or disconnection that um that he's above above the situation somehow and that you know he, he survived the corporate takeover thing at the beginning so he's going to survive this, you know, he's going to talk his way out of it or he's going to deal his way out of it somehow. So he doesn't believe that he's going to get executed because he he's better. You know, he'll 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 be all right. He'll sort something out because yeah, he's, he's a winner, you know. Yeah, he yeah. talks the corporate talk, doesn't he, at the start? And, and uh, you know, we, we have the opening sequence that starts with the, um, the sort of the sterility of the corporate setting, lots of greys and blues very cold isn't it and it opened the film actually opens on that monitor which has got that graphic uh that corporate video from mirage xt the project blaze it reminded me of robocop 
Yeah, it reminds me a bit of Robocop. It reminds me more of Videodrome. You know, the start of Videodrome mm. when James Wonders, Max Ren wakes up and it's uh, Bridey um, on his TV monitor. Max, this is your wake-up call. And uh, there's a woman off screen who's, I don't know who it is. Um, she says, George, you're driving yourself crazy. How many times are you going to watch this? It's not his wife. I think it's it's some other some other woman, isn't it? It's a floozy, um, you might say. And uh, <coughs> then... Floozy? <coughs> Can I not? No. Is that not appropriate? No, it might have been <laughs> someone somewhere. <laughs> but um, but but she's not given much to do this this woman in George's life. Uh, we should say. Um, so maybe I should bleep that out. I do apologise. Um, <laughs> no, because uh, you bleep it out, it makes it sound much worse <laughs> worse than it is. Yeah, I see it would do, wouldn't it? I'm thinking about it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll just leave it in. Um, <laughs> we'll take the heat. <laughs> Excuse me, <clears throat> but George steals the money, and the question that I've sort of got for you is: is is George's theft of the money just, you know, is is it morally right? He's, he he claims that he's stealing it from the company's new corporate overlords to establish that new company in Reno and continue the software project, which the new company have halted. And he says five years of hard work. He says to his team, doesn't he? And uh, he says to his, the, the other guy when they're in that that sauna, that um, jacuzzi together with the, the mud packs on the faces. He says, "I'm not buying a yacht and sailing to the Bahamas. I'm investing this in something we believed in that you believed in." And um, I mean, ironically, you know, the the uh, the the, the next film was the crew which featured a character played by Viggo Mortensen whose materialism was signified through his obsession with his yacht to the extent that he kills a character he commits a cold-blooded murder really towards the, the, the climax of the film he really doesn't present a threat the overriding image that I've got of that I revisited that um, at the weekend uh, because Sinkovich said um, in the email that you, you should re-watch the, the crew and I've not seen it for a long long time <clears throat> but the overriding image that I've got of that is Mortensen is the yacht's white and it's desperately cleaning the blood off the white surface of the yacht after the murder, you know. And I think there's a there's a, a similarity between George, the materialistic George, and and uh, and, um, and Mortensen's character in the crew. But you know, is his is his theft of the money just as he claims it to be morally right? Um, is it justified? You know, to what extent do you think George is spinning a yarn? My my sort of interpretation of the title is that, that George's kind of del- delusion is that he's deluding himself in, in sort of suggesting altruism to justify his theft, I think, personally. But I don't know how you feel, Pete. Yeah, no, it wasn't um, it wasn't something that I really picked up on. It, it's, a, it, it, it's just, especially with the, the talking about it today, it just seemed that in the back of his mind it, as the whole thing's going on, he's thinking, oh, I'm all right, I've got the money in the back. I've just got to get rid of these and then I'll get away with it and I've got my money. Um, didn't It didn't strike me as a, a just sort of crusade to, you know. Yeah, he's not removed from a sense of this big evil corporation that's taking over things. You know, he, he looks, he, he seems very much part of the system. He doesn't seem like he's the little guy fighting against the big evil guys that have took over his business. Yeah, yeah. He's got a car phone. You know, he's one of them. He is, yeah, yeah. I, I agree, I think. <clears throat> Mark, I don't know, you felt about George's uh, sort of uh, stealing of that money. Was it, do you think it's morally, do you think his claims it's morally justified or uh, valid, have any validity to them or? 
Well, no, of course they don't. Because um, I don't know if it's because it's like you said about the class thing, obviously, as as you know, as a, as a poor, poor gentleman, you know, watching a film about a very rich gentleman who has, you know, the world at his feet and his beautiful apartment overlooking you know, fantastic views and that. I don't connect with him or relate to him as much. So him by him going, by him going, you know, well, it's you know. It's not. It's not like I'm stealing this, so I can go buy a yacht. I'm doing it for a reason. Yeah, but you're still stealing it, aren't you? And it's, it's still, it's still crime. It's still a crime. And if you're in that sort of high-powered, cutthroat world of of, of business that he's in, unfortunately, these you know these hostile takeovers and and things like that, they happen all the time. You can't just throw your toys out of the pram and go, well, I'll just <laughs> steal half a million dollars then. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it seems very immature, I suppose, is the word. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the point that we expressed at the end, isn't it, as well? We're just talking about the, the ending of the picture. Um, I mean, Colpier <clears throat> in, in, in email said that. Uh, George's plan, quoting, George's plan was flawed from the beginning. The foundation of his plan was a lie. The lie slowly becomes a character when he picks up Chevy and, and Patty. And, and this leads to the white-collar criminal facing justice in, in Death Valley, which is where most of the picture was shot. His actions were predestined, if you like, by his own behaviour. Um, and George, in the film, comments, was said earlier, he comments on how easy that theft is. He says, nobody's going to find out, especially since the takeover. Nobody knows what anybody else is doing, especially the bosses. And I think I've worked for bosses that have done similar creative accounting. Um, <laughs> Mike drop there. Um, I, <laughs> uh, I'll let that sink in. And then um, Carl, Carl Pearce said um, um, as well that, uh, and, and, and I think this was very much this kind of um, creative sort of approach to financing was uh, something that Carl Pearce had was thinking about satirising in the film deliberately. Because Carl Pearce says, that, quote, this movie was written while he was working at New World Pictures and he got the sense that uh, the impression that nobody really cared about the, the movies that they were making at New World, it felt the company was a, a bit of a sort of a financial scam in the sense that they weren't interested in the films that were being produced. And that was the backdrop for the George characters. So that was that was the motivation, really, for um, for for sort of the, the, the narrative, if you like. Um, what about uh, Chevy? How do you feel about Chevy as a character and Secor's performance as Chevy? I think it, I think it's quite interesting the way he can switch from being a sort of uh, like I said earlier, not not necessarily a buffoon, but sort of a, a strange sort of happy sort of even sort of elf-like gentleman. Um, and then, as soon as you know, obviously something doesn't go his way, he, the the aggression comes out, and um, not only the aggression, but also the um, the sort the whole sort of "where is me" attitude, doesn't it? Um, obviously, it's, I know self victimization. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, he does drop that bomb that I know you're not fond of, Mark, where he says that at some point when uh, George is trying to buy his way, his freedom. And Chevy says, any compromise would be an insult to my loyalty and my reputation. See, that's what's wrong with this country. No more loyalty. 
And uh, we talked about that last time, didn't we, in reference to talk radio, yeah. uh, that, that phrase, this country. And, and yeah, George yeah. says, sarcastically, yeah. And George sarcastically says, uh, yeah, that's right. That's what's wrong with this country. Good thing we've got guys like you running around. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, what do you think about Chevy P? Yeah, I suppose it's, for me, it's like, you know, for for many reasons, just, I, I want to see the story of him and uh, him and Larry, you know, he's he's Larry's protege, you know, Larry sort of showed him the ropes and or at least got him into the, the <clears> business <throat> and they and they work together. That's a um, so idea, isn't it? Yeah. So he, he, he's the new <clears throat> version of Larry. And I think if you're comparing him to Larry, then he's. He's not the good option, is he, you know? Uh, well, they're very different, aren't they? Because they're from different generations. And like mm. you said about Orbach's performance, it reminds you very much of sort of 50s and 60s sort of film noir crime, crime films. Whereas Chevy's a much, it's sort of the, the 80s materialistic yuppie hitman, isn't he? Yeah. Know? And I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting that I think that sort of relationship between um, Chevy and Larry and how ruthless Chevy is when it comes to killing Larry. And, uh, you know, he, this is where he, he quotes that one paraphrases that line from the godfather he says this is businessman this isn't personal <clears throat> and larry's last moments is sort of a victim of that corporate that new corporate ruthlessness mm. and there's a wonderful moment i think larry's death scene where it reminds me very much of i mentioned peckinpah really but the the end of peckinpah's uh ride the high country with randolph scott and joel mccray a western and um uh, uh um uh, it's, it's got a gut shot. It's shot in the gut by uh, the bad guys. And uh, at the end of the film, it, you know, it's, it's, there's been this line that's been echoed throughout the picture, which is, "All I want to do is to enter my house justified." Uh, you know, which I think is 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 quite an interesting sort of moral dimension to that picture. But at the end of the picture, McRae sort of collapses in front, very slowly collapses in front of this beautiful landscape, and you get this sense that he's at peace with his death. And uh, but Larry says in his last moments, he says it sure is pretty, doesn't he? Very sort of pathetically, and um, Chevy shoots him. And it sort of reminds. I don't know if it was conscious, but it it made me think of that moment at the end of uh, the High Country, where Joel McRae sort of looks out at the landscape and he sort of takes it all in. And, and Larry's last moments are in this sort of beautiful wilderness. Well, it's quite barren, isn't it? But it's mm. sort of an oasis that he lives at with, a, with the lake and, and, and the caravan. So he's sure he's pretty. And, and Chevy kills him. You know, he's, he's, he's former mentee. Chevy then shouts something then, um, which is echoed in that, that really weird um, uh, female motorbike rider that, that picks um, uh, later. But um, what what... Did I miss something there with the um, when when he uh, when he kills Larry and then he shouts something? I think it's like a a, a name or something. It's just a single word. Um, he sort of shoots him and then just does this animal sort of calling. Yeah, out. I, I couldn't I couldn't place what that word was. Because then, then he, he's picked up by the the motorcyclist who's who's very a, a very strange character, and um, but she she but she keeps shouting Bono in, in exactly yeah, 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 in, exa- in exactly the same way. She reminded me of a character just uh, a, a film uh, the top of his head. Um, I've got it on DVD next door. It's a, a very uh, a very art house sort of film. 
Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, and I, I maybe grab who 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 made it. But he this this guy meet there's a, there's a performance artist going around and sort of interfering with his life, sort of thing. And he's very much like um, the the, uh, the character here. You know, he's sort of a yuppie, sort of well, he's failed businessman. He wants to be a yuppie, I guess, but. Um, he meets this woman who's traveling around and um and she's going she's going to go for a uh, an operation that's going to send her blind because they've got to remove this tumor sort of thing and he just sort of hangs around with her for a little bit um as she's sort of taking photos of of the world um for some reason it that character reminded me of her um, yeah i mean that the the sort of the biker interlude <clears throat> It's, in, it's such an enigmatic moment. And again, it's very much a, a European moment, I think. Mm, yes. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and, and she sort of wanders in and she says, Bono, Bono. And she, I thought you were Bono. I lost him in the revolution. And he says, Joyce yeah. says, what revolution? She says, the sexual revolution. Yeah. And it's kind of, and it, I think it's, uh, you know, I did ask <coughs> uh, 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 the uh, Colby and uh, Sinkovich, you know, whether anything else was shot with that bike. And apparently it wasn't, but it's just, it was meant to be enigmatic, you know, and, uh, it, it feels very sort of curtailed and very elliptical, very enigmatic. Um, but uh, but I think that that's sort of mentioned in the sexual revolution and how we, she's an she's a woman on a motorbike in the desert, which is very atypical. And maybe that that contrasts with Patty, doesn't it? It was kind of and how mm. she's been objectified by the men, and then she becomes very independent, if you like. And, and in some ways, as well, George is initiated into the the sort of the sexual revolution when when Patty sort of you know, uh, uh, seduces him or allows him to seduce her, perhaps. Um, you know, and, and, and uh, yeah, I think it's quite, that sequence with the bike, I think, is, is very mem- memorable, isn't it? It feels very sort of left field, I think. Mm. Uh, I don't know, Mark, did you have any sort of feelings about that scene with the biker? <clears throat> I just found it quite confusing. Um <laughs> To be honest, it's sort of it's it's considering how barren the landscape is and how empty it is and how very um how very um rare it is you see another person. I just thought it was a little bit lucky, you know, sort of sort of Deus Ex Machina type that she would turn up anyway. I suppose um, it's a tradition. You know, so things like Vanishing Point, yeah, um, that sort of thing, uh, where people, strangers in a wilderness just sort of bump into each other. There's yeah. um, even just, we, we just we were mentioning what 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 uh, what films we've been watching recently. We watched um, is it Rangu or Rango the yeah, animation. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I I I had I had a I had a vision of uh, of a washed up sort of lecturer who gets fired because all he does is shows his shows his students the first five minutes of Rango and then just leaves. <laughs> he talks, about, <laughs> talks about narrative structure and stuff. Um, but even, but in that as well, there's this tradition of of these wayward wanderers that just bump into each other, sort of thing. And again, that top of his head um, remind. Uh, Reminds me of that. I've just brought that up. Who made it? Uh, uh, 
But uh, oh, it's Canadian, which is interesting because it reminded me again of a film called Roadkill, not the more modern version, but again a, a, a Canadian film called Roadkill, which is uh, anyway. I'm 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 rabbit in whilst I'm trying to find this uh, thing. Carry on. I'm sorry, but, um, it feels it's very much sort of that Western uh, vibe, isn't it? It's particularly spaghetti westerns, you know, where characters sort of wander in the desert and, and sort of you know encounter. I'm thinking particularly the good, the bad, and the ugly, where uh, those sort of three characters—the the Lee Van Cleef, Lee Van Cleef character, the Eli Wallet character, the the Clint Eastwood character—they're there's such this vast desert space, but they sort of their lives overlap in so many random ways, and, and uh, you know very much that that sense of landscape that you get in, in Delusion is is very much a reference to to, to westerns, or it uses westerns as a, a reference point, and. Uh, you know, both Culpe and Sinkovich said that uh, Sergio Leone's westerns, uh, spaghetti westerns, were a particular sort of reference point visually for the film. And and that that uh, that landscape, the desert, the Death Valley locations feel very much um, very open and symbolic. They're a frontier, aren't they? Um, and it's got a, a sort of corollary in the crew, Culpert's uh, other film that I mentioned earlier, uh, where you've got the, the yacht on the sea, which is an empty space. And out of all that empty space, the, the, the yacht that Viggo Mortensen's piloting sort of comes across Jeremy Sisto, this, this disaster, um, this boat that sinks, um, explodes actually uh, with Jeremy Sisto and, and uh, his associate and... and uh, you know, out of all that space, the, 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 the lives of these people intersect randomly. Um, and it's almost like purgatory, isn't it? You know, it's, it's almost like Dante-esque, like divine comedy. Um, and the landscape's so immutable. It's, it's a desert. It's been there that way for millions of years. Chevy says at one point to George, when the unexpected happens, you just got to let go. And George says, why don't you just get to the point? Because he's getting fed up with his periphrases, this circumlocution that, that Chevy's uh, roundabout way of speaking that Chevy's got. And Chevy says, what? You think everything's got a point? Look at the desert out there. Does the desert have a point? It's been there for millions of years. It ain't going nowhere. Our points are meaningless, George. You know, and, and this sense that whatever happens, whatever drama unfolds here is so sort of transient. But the landscape's so immutable, and I think that's what you get from many westerns, isn't it? You know, but uh, but you know, <clears throat> you've got. I think that's mirrored in the transition in the film from the sort of the road movie conventions at the start, the corporate world to the road movie noir to the western at the end, and, and, and you get a very very strong sense of those influences of the film western in the climax with the Mexican mm. standoff, yeah, and yeah. Um, particularly the, the the way in which it's shot with the legs. In the foreground, mm, yeah, from a low yeah. angle, and then but, uh, but he's wearing that Mac, that sort of symbol of city life, I suppose, you know, instead yeah, instead exactly. of the poncho sort of thing, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, what what about uh, the the Robert Costanzo's character, the, the sort of the, the sales, the, the gangster, the Vegas interlude? I think that's a great scene. Um, I don't know what what you thought about that. Well, I think we talked to, uh, about it earlier, didn't we? Where we were talking about the masculine sort of attempts to take over the situation and things that get interesting. And you know, there's these echoes of Robert De Niro was talking in an interview about, yeah, and he was sort of gushing about. The, how wonderful gangsters are because they've got this code and and all this sort of thing and it's all about <laughs> respect and stuff like that and um i guess it's it there's a an element of um, sat, satire on on that 
I think, because he's obviously a no. And he's he's got this this idea that you know he takes on the rings of of people who portray him as this oh, yeah, honorable yeah. sort of samurai like code sort of thing, and he's just a, I think an interesting sleeve sort of, bag. Yeah, yeah. Thing that, thing in, that mirrors, his tracks in his in his woman. Yeah. There's that th- a thing that maybe mirrors the car phone thing is the fact that he gives him the fifty thousand dollars or something and says you can keep the briefcase. That's a three hundred dollar briefcase. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a wonderful throwaway line, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, there's there's that equivalence, I think, of the corporate world and the the gangster, the world of gangsters. Yeah, um, and and um, I think the 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 interlude with sales at Vegas uh, sort of highlights it. It's it's introduced a bit earlier where um, Larry's George realizes that Chevy seems to know everything about him, and and Chevy does that put on where he, he sort of claims that, um, or suggests or implies that. He's been hired by the corporate owners of the new company mm. to sort of kill George. Um, I don't know how much of that's true, how much of that Chevy's uh, sort of putting on. He seems to know a lot about George, whether he's just inferred it from the details in the car, I'm not entirely sure. But but uh, Larry also describes uh, sales. He says, he's our boss, George. He's a great businessman, doesn't he, as well, which kind of hammers that, that sort of similarity, that parallel home again, I think. Um I suppose okay. the, the 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 one the one time I think I felt well maybe at the end as well where he, he gets oh it's my gut you know when he gets when he gets shot but I think the one time you sort of feel I felt um, some sympathy towards Chevy was um, where he's he's got the money and he's I think he's riding down the elevator or something and he's he's clutching it really you know, close yeah. to his face yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's not like a greed possessive thing at that point it seems to be like a i've got my i've been rewarded you know if this is i think he's very know. emasculated in that interlude isn't he oh he is yeah i mean I, like, i've got so sorry so Matt, you carry on even on his way to it you know he, he he sort of regresses to a boy doesn't he even the way he does his hair you know it's then yeah. slicked down to his scalp and it's parted very neatly he's, got a nice suit na- on. nail clippers on his on his beard and mustache yeah yeah, I've never done that. No, I haven't. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I have. I don't want to say unruly beard, but I do have a large beard. I've never nail clipped it. <laughs> but, um, Maybe yeah, you should. But yes, possibly. It's you know, there are lots of beard hairs on you know just scattered around me. Maybe I should clip them. <laughs> but, um, I've got visions of your malting bag. <laughs> I do. I do malt. I'm like <laughs> I'm, I'm like an unlovable dog. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he's he's that's I agree with you, Peter. It's the only time you feel sorry for him, don't you? Um is when when he's on the way up, you can tell he's scared and he's regressed very um to sort of like a childlike state, hasn't he? And um you can tell he's really nervous while he's there. And then and then as he's leaving, you know, where he, he refers to him by his first name and he goes, Oh no, it's Mr. Sales, you dickhead or whatever. Yeah. And they all laugh at him, and I'm like, "Oh, that's not nice." And then I remember, then you remember that he's there to collect fifty thousand dollars for killing someone, um, and then he just goes and he, he reverts back to, you know, his his horrible, annoying, aggressive character. And well, it, it goes could, back to rape. Uh, yeah, exactly. That. I was yeah. going to say that could be one of the reasons why his reaction to Patty when he gets back is so is so horrible because. He's had a lot of his masculinity stripped away from him, hasn't he? And he, yeah. he feels the need to reassert himself as yeah. 
a dominant figure and he does it in such uh, a horrible way. And, and he blows that money, doesn't he, in the casinos mm. as well? Just, oh, yeah, it all goes. Straight back into the pockets of the mob, you would assume. Yeah. Um, I mean, just once that, in that, my life have I understood the game of craps. <laughs> I don't get I, I, taught, I taught my kids uh, um, Blackjack, what do they call it? Um, uh, 21. Um, hmm. uh, only camping. Ah, uh, uh, oh, what do they call it in the casinos? Blackjack. Blackjack, 20, Blackjack 21. Is it blackjack? Yeah, anyway. or pontoon or something. Man. I don't know. I've never, I've never been in the casino. I, I have to admit. And uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. So at least if they're going to, you know, Monte Carlo, they can sort of <laughs> hold their own blackjack. Then um, <laughs> now, another name for it, isn't it? In French, it's, in the, it's always in the James Bond books. That's the game that he plays. Um, Bacar- not Baccarat, Baccarat. Anyway. Is it Baccarat? That's a, a bold detective or something, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's Montal Barner, isn't it? Anyway. <laughs> there is a game. Uh, enough, yeah. enough of the card games. Um, but uh, but Costanzo, I think Costanzo is great. And uh, it's, it's got the right sense of sort of threat and, and sort of sliminess. And yeah, yeah. Um, it, it ridicules. You know, Chevy at that point has been the film's major antagonist. Pat has been quite passive up till that point. Um and, and you know, obviously her character develops in, in, in those in that sequence of the film. But Chevy comes out earlier, you know, from the um, the gas station with the, 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 the sort of the miniature Christmas tree, the candy cane, and the, the weird mask with the dog's nose on it, doesn't he? So that he, we already know he's quite childlike, but in, in Vegas he's really, really shown to be quite pathetic. He's ridiculed by sales, as, as you've said quite rightly. Um, and this hoodlums, and there's that weird moment where they have that sort of barbershop trio, barbershop quartet mm. as well, isn't it? And um, and then Sales makes Chevy dance with him and Annabelle, this girl called Annabelle, Ooh, and um, and he tells him he's that, a very handsome man or something, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He says uh, uh, Chevy says that because they've already established that, that Sales, that Patty is Sales' former mole, and uh, you know men who share that lay the same piece of ass can call each other by the first name and so on. And and then Sales he comes on to Chevy in a way, mm. makes him dance with him and Annabelle. He says. And Chevy says Patty's left him, and and, and, and Sale says, "Fuck her! You're a nice, you're a nice-looking boy. Nice set of hair." It reminds me of that moment in in Villain, that that uh, '70s British crime film with um, uh, the Great Drinker, uh, Richard Burton. Sorry, I think of him as the Great Drinker, um, but um, where um, he says to um, uh, Lovejoy, uh, Ian McShane. Um, so it's also right. get, get to that age now where I sort of have to go around, around the house a bit. Villain with with uh, with uh, Richard Burton and Ian McShane, and and it's based on the craze, and um, and and uh, there's a suggestion of this sort of um, homosexual relationship between um, uh, uh, Burton and McShane. He says, "I'll take you into town tomorrow, buy you some nice suits," you know, and it sort of establishes that that relationship between them in Villain. And this 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 moment where he says, uh, Sale says to Chevy, it's, it's quite similar. It's got a similar sort of intimation to it. You're a nice-looking boy. Nice set of hair. There's plenty more of that coming along. And then he makes him dance intimately with mm. himself and Annabelle. And then he mocks him as he goes out. Oh, it's Mr. Sales, you know, mm. as, as you say. And it's it's um, I think it's a great moment. I mean, it's so you get the sense of, uh, as you said, Mark, of Chevy being humiliated. And uh, that 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 perhaps motivates why he goes back and he tries to assert his sort of masculinity in quite an unpleasant way. I think the, sorry, sorry. I think sales are interesting as well. You know, the, with the casting of him asserting himself as this uber male 
purely through his behavior and setting because he you know the actor is a sort of short balding guy you know so if we're talking about masculinity he's not a prime example of strong masculinity but he's presented himself yeah surrounded you know the the blonde sort of woman hanging off his arm obviously paid to do so so yeah yeah, yeah. i mean costanzo's got i mean you, you look at costanzo's credits and i mean he's got an incredible career um you know and, and uh, um you know round about this this within the year or two of this total recall he was in uh uh total recall Dick Tracy, Die Hard Two, you know, such the, you know, he, he was sort of, uh, uh, he is in Unlawful Entry as well, which I'd forgotten about, um, but such a sort of a presence, such a recognisable sort of actor. As is Tracy Walter, who's, who's kind of, you know, drops in there as the the the, the uh, bus ticket salesman, doesn't he? Um, you know, Tracy Walter, who I was remember. I know mm. Tracy Walter's done a lot more than this, but I always remember him as uh, for his role in Serpico and his role in Rumblefish and, and also Repo Man, which is a film that I love. But he's in Conan and <laughs> Destroyer, isn't he? And, you know, he's all sorts of incredible, sort of very memorable actors, these two guys. And I think they sort of really enlivened those uh, late sequences of the film, I think, uh, particularly. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of equivalence there between sort of the uh the the mob and the business i think and uh um you know there's 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 another moment that hammers that home when when after george has killed uh chevy's killed uh larry and uh he makes that joke doesn't he? we're gonna have to cut, cut his head off and george is appalled at this and chevy's like, oh, i'm just joking and uh, but he has that conversation chevy does with patty a bit later and, and he's you know talking about what he's going to kill george because george is a witness and patty says you don't have a contract on him you can't kill him and chevy says he's an amendment patty mm. and uh, you know how many times in, in your working life you know in, in corporations have you felt like an amendment don't <laughs> that <laughs> Um, moving swiftly on, um, you've got this. I think you've got this to come, haven't you, Mark? Bless you, bless yes. your little cock socks. <laughs> um, I'm 31. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the little cock sucks to me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to. I just put that as being funny, not patronizing. Um, but, um but uh, I mean, what about uh, the parallels with some classic films? Noir? I mean, to me, this feels very much like a, a, a neo noir. It feels very noir. Um, I know, uh, um, you know, Colpert said when I, I asked about uh, the sort of the connections to neo noir. I mean, of course, you know, sort of classic films noir, the forties and the fifties. Most of those weren't sort of made as films noir. The, the label was applied later by French critics. Um, but looking back, you can see that they are a sort of a unified group, group of films, you know, the Maltese Falcon and Touch of Evil and, and so on and so forth. And I think you can see, looking back, that those are, are sort of very similar um, uh, films that are connected in some way by this noir label. And, and likewise, we've, we've been talking for... And, and talk radio is a bit of an adjunct to this, but I, I think talk radio, Pete, is very much a a neo-noir in, in, in many ways in its worldview, the way that it looks at the world it's very sort of cynical uh, it's, it's shot in a very noirish uh, way and um, you know I did ask um, I think I think it fits in that sense um, 
And I, I did ask uh, Sinkovic and, and um, Colpier about the neo-noir label and uh, kind of the, the, the response was that, uh, um, that uh, Colpier didn't really think of this as noir at the time, but uh, that the intention was to make a road movie, really, which is a very noirish uh, subgenre anyway, but, uh, um, but uh, you know, it wasn't uh, self-consciously sort of developed as a, as a neo-noir. But again, I think, you know, looking back it's, retrospectively, you can sort of see that connection between a film like this and, and After Dark, My Sweet and, and mm. One False Move, which Jim Metzler was in One False Move, wasn't he? You know, the um, A Simple Plan, which we've discussed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you can see the parallels between these. Um, but in terms of that sort of very movie noir connection, I think that there are parallels here between Edgar Ulmer's Detour. I don't know if any of you have seen that, yeah. 1945 yeah. film noir. Uh, again, Hitchhikers, Picked Up, Murders, and so on. Um, another film, one of my favourite films, actually, probably in my top ten, is Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker from 1953, which is uh, about two friends that are out on a fishing trip who pick, pick up a hitchhiker who turns out to be a murderer. Mm, uh, that's, the, the devil thumbs are... Ride. Devil Thumps a Ride, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of years after Delusion, of course, you've got Dominic Sainer's California with um, uh, Brad Pitt and David Duchovny and uh, Michelle Forbes, uh, where Duchovny and Forbes are a yuppie couple, and, and uh, he's writing a book about serial killers, I think, and they go and visit a sort of a location associated with serial killers, and uh, Juliet Lewis, of course, is in it as well, too. I could have forget her. Um, but, uh, you know, that they take um, Brad Pitt and Juliet Lewis with them, unaware that Brad Pitt's a murderer, a serial killer himself. Um, you might have seen that. Has anybody seen California with a K? I think it, ring, it definitely rings a bell. Um, Again, it's another one that's not... It was kind of fallen by the wayside since, but um, there was a, another film in, in 93, a couple of years after Delusion, with uh, called Trouble Bound, uh, with Michael Madsen and Patricia Arquette. Uh, Madsen's a petty thief and he picks up Patricia Arquette um, and it turns out that she's, she's out to murder a guy from the mob. Um, True Romance as well. You know, again, 93. So the, the, there are lots of sort of parallels, I think, there with the, that noir, neo-noir structure of the, the you know, the, the picking up dangerous hitchhikers on the road. Um, but the other film that I think the structure of this reminds me a lot of is Psycho. And uh, particularly, yes, you know, yeah. so, so, Pete, did you want to yeah, say something? No, I was, no that, that, that came to mind when, when you started this line, uh, immediately started thinking of, of Psycho when you started talking about this, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, of course, in Psycho, we've got Marion Crane. She steals money from her employer, doesn't she? she she's sort of travelling across the state. Um, and in um, Delusion, of course, you've got George stealing the money from the company, that he, the money that embezzles, and it parallels Marion's flight. But there's also that moment, and <clears throat> I should have asked Colby and Zinkovich if this was deliberate, but uh, where, where the highway patrolman comes up to the car and, and he speaks to, um, he's got the blue sunglasses, and he speaks to um, Patty, because Patty's driving at that point, and George kind of bails them out. And um, it reminds me very much of the moment where Marion Crane is sleeping in the car in Psycho, and the highway patrolman comes up with a mirrored sunglasses. I've shown this to students quite a lot of times, that sequence, and you know how it puts you in the subjective point of view of the character. But he comes up with those mirrored sunglasses, and it's that low angle shot of that highway patrolman, the, the, the window of the car on the driver's side, and, and She's very nervous, of course, because she's stolen the money, and and it, it's a very sim- sort of similar sequence, I think, uh, in some ways. I don't know if you've, if you've seen Psycho, Mark. I would assume I you have. I've seen Psycho, yes. 
Did you sort of get any psycho vibes? Yes, I did. Yeah, like you said, with the um, you know the stealing of the money, then sort of the uh, the, the 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 escape in the car, um, even to the scene obviously where she's stopped by the police by the trooper, isn't she? And he he leans into the window, and then um, Patty's stopped by the police in the, in this as well, isn't she? And by that police minister yeah and she's speeding so th- there are quite a lot of um parallels aren't there yeah even to I love that the most unpleasant scene at the end being very in a very tight quarters in a hotel room as well yeah that's true the motel sitting at the end um, yeah yeah that's, a, yeah, that's she specifically a says as well that it doesn't have a bath as well it's got a shower yeah 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 i've forgotten about that yeah that's, that's a really good point it probably draws more um what I'm looking for. More um, parallels to it than you uh, originally suspect, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I should have asked about that, really, to be honest. Um, yes, I mean, I love done. that. Should have done. Yeah, I was a very naughty, very neglectful boy there. Yes. Um, but, um, I, you know, that, that uh, Highway Patrolman State Trooper, forgive me, I mean, you know, the, the sort of the police designations in America, I get them confused. But I think it's a great little performance. It's only very small, but it's such a memorable scene. And he looks at Patty's licence, doesn't he? He says, oh, I've got I've got family in Arkansas, doesn't he? Mm. And, uh, is it you know, true, blood, true blood or true love? And uh, she says, I don't know any true blood officers. She puts on that sort of wonderful, naive sort of accent, doesn't she? And uh, I think that's a great moment. Um but I mean, I mentioned Detour, um, which I think was made remade in the eighties, wasn't it? Remade in the nineties. Um, I'm sure there was a remake of that. <clears throat> but uh, that was the title of the student film by Colpiet, uh, which this evolved from, um, and that was the first collaboration Detour, this this short film that Colpiet made when he was a uh, student at the AFI, um, the first collaboration with with Sinkovich, and. Um, uh, and, and Sinkovich actually described Illusion in, in, in the email to myself, uh, sorry, Detour, sorry, he described Detour as, quote, actually the first Illusion. It was short, but the story was similar. And then many years later, they had the chance to shoot the real movie with, with a good budget in, in 89. Colpert said, uh, Detour was a short we made while we were both students at AFI. It's similar ideas and character dynamics. And... Um, as I say, you know, the, the evolution of this into a feature film script um, incorporated some work by Kurt Voss on the dialogue. Um, and Colbert said that Kurt was very instrumental in developing the dialogue for the film. And this interested me, actually, because it hadn't struck me before, but there was something about the sparkiness of the dialogue, particularly in those um, early scenes with Chevy and Patty and George, mm. um, and, and, and how the sort of it bounces back and forth. And it, it reminded me of, um, not of the reference point that Colpier made in the email, but it reminded me of uh, the script for um, Sweet Smell of Success, you know, the Alexander, Alexander McKendrick film with uh, um, Tony Curtis and Bert Lancaster, very sort of rapid fire back and forth. Colpier mm. said it was the dialogue was very inspired by Harold Pinter, especially mm. Chevy's bantering. So, Pete, no, again, for me at the beginning, it, that that element didn't gel for me. For me, you know, that that Chevy was that sort of oh, I'm 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 a bad guy by saying innocuous things, but in a really sort of clearly I'm a bad guy sort of way, unhinged a little bit sort of thing. That banter was a little bit sort of. Well, but again, once um, they met Larry, instantly 
the one liners just seem to be gelling a lot more. You know, there's uh, there's a thing where um, uh, Patty says, uh, "Don't catch anything." When he goes into the lake and he says, "Yeah, maybe a white shark." And and again, it, it, it's it seems and he's, to he's in, his, in his white duds. Yeah. And this that, that silly hat with a massive grip. Yeah. yeah, sorry, Pete, carry on. But it's, it it seems to have found its groove by then. That those sort of under breath sort of one liners again, maybe a bit long, uh, long goodbye ish, you know, with um, Elliot Gould. But uh, it, it's really working by then. I think at, at first it was again that Tarantino esque sort of thing of 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 witty dialogue for the but before sake of it. as well i think mm. it's worth sort of pointing out isn't it you know um, sorry pete no no sorry but i think i think it, it became a, a lot more sort of um uh, uh settled in a little yeah. bit later into the, the film after half an hour or so yeah i mean uh culpit also said that the uh the film was shot almost as a play with with desert landscapes as a backdrop and you kind of see that because there's a limited number of sort of locations isn't there really once you get to the desert there's the car there's a gas station there's the motel there's las vegas but it's got this almost play-like structure i think and you you, you can sort of see that i think in many ways um again very influenced by by pinter's work um but yeah i think i think like you said particularly that uh when Chevy and, and, and Larry uh, encounter each other for the first time, we presume for years, and uh, uh, one of them says, and I forget which one, says, you can take the guy out of the city. And then the mm. other one finishes that. So you, it's almost like a double act. You can't take the city out mm. of the guy. And it's almost like Lovell and Hardy at that point, isn't it? You know, it's kind of... Um, and like you say, it'd be great to see a prequel with... Uh, uh, you know, Larry and, and Chevy as as, as sort of uh, mentor and mentee assassins, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That'd be quite interesting. Um, I mean, in terms of the <clears throat> production, I don't, did you dig up anything about production? No, no, no. No, I couldn't find much. I'll, I'll be honest, there's not a lot out there. And, uh, you know, I've, 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 as I said, I've got a long relationship with Delusion because uh, as I saw it in 93 and 94, I think, on BBC, um and uh, I, I, I liked it then i think it's grown on me even more over the years um but uh uh, uh it, it, all, in all that time i've looked for information about the film and i've not been able to find a great deal in books so I've, I've found criticisms and analyses and so on but not not found a lot about the production so um i was a bit uh um, I don't get starstruck easily. Done a lot of interviews, but I was, I was a bit sort of starstruck when Carl Culpert emailed me out the blue because uh, Sinkovich sort of passed my email on. So I was I was I was, I was quite starstruck when Culpert emailed me. I, I have to admit, um, because I, I, I like this film so much. But uh, apparently, it was shot over five weeks according to Culpert. Uh, four of those weeks were in Death Valley, and there's one week in in Vegas and LA. The, the budget was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And uh, one of the questions that I did ask was uh, how sort of economic uh, economical was the shoot? You know, was there anything that was uh, any material that shot wasn't uh, included in the final edit? And uh, the answer that I got was that the the production was economical. You know, um, no material was excised in the edit. You know, pretty much what was in the shooting script was what what you see on the screen, with some. Uh, as I say, that that fight scene, some amendments in the shooting, some slight amendments, but there's no sort of scenes dropped. Uh, the only amendment really was a reshoot of the ending, and um, maybe that's a good point to talk about that really, because uh, <clears throat> you know that 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 uh, that ending, that Mexican standoff, 
um, uh, was uh, revised slightly um, after production wrap. There were three months later, there were some uh, reshoots, um, or not reshoots, but some new material shot uh, for the for the resolution. Um, uh, and, and, and that footage, as, as I can understand, showed Chevy's demise in his final monologue, uh, where he delivers that sort of moment where we realise how. Well, I think we know how unpleasant he is already, but he, he says um, to uh, George, he says the first one is always the hardest. I remember my first, the look, the look on her face. Mm. We realised that the first person he killed was a woman, of course. He says it gets easier, George. It does its business. It's nothing personal, and. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe that that was the, the, the material that was shot a bit later. Uh, Sinkovich said that, uh, um, quote, the, the film, uh, the ending of the film was really shot three months later with a different ending, the one that you saw. It cuts from a shot on George, which was shot on December 1989, to Chevy three months later in March 1990. And then it continues. said one of the difficulties there was a lighting match. Of course, he's going from one season to another season. But uh, it's not obvious on the film. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that. I think, you know, that, that, that ending was... Um, revised um th- there was new material sort of added later on and culpit said the film always had an open ending uh, we were going to end it with a mexican standoff and leave it at that but it felt too open of an ending so we added the last couple of minutes where george shoots chevy and george george kind of becomes chevy at the end of the film um and i think uh i mean i don't know if, if you kind of got that but uh you know uh, culpit says that uh, you know george becomes chevy at the end of the film they became each other and that transference of identity um that you get between george and chevy in, in the film's final sequences i don't know if that was something that that sort of struck you um i wouldn't say it struck me as a transference of identity um it did sort of show me well not show me but um, i did think about sort of uh, George's character development in in terms of how far he'll go for money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean he's, not, he's not necessarily intentionally shot Chevy, has he? Because you could argue that the gun went off in in the struggle. That's true. Um, but there's, it's a there's point. still an intent there, wasn't there? He still yeah. he still pointed a gun at someone and threatened their life, didn't he? Yeah, so I think that. There's a development of his character, isn't there? Yeah, I think I think you can see that change in George, particularly when he the biker takes him back to Larry's caravan and he sits in the caravan. And he's he's drinking teachers, it's whiskey, isn't it? At the bottle, I think it's teachers, um, and he's sort of plotting his revenge. And you can see George changing there. Sorry, Mark. No, no, no. I'll, I'll just clear my throat. Oh, okay. Sorry, uh, Pete. I don't know that that should sort of. Uh, development of george that he becomes like chevy in the, in the in the film's final sequences does that strike you or no I was, I was trying to think about it whilst you were talking about it um i don't know I, it, if, if if i think if he does it's definitely already in there you know because yeah. I, I think he's drawing something out that's already in his character yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean he's not the wise cracking chevy <clears throat> you know he's He's, the potential to kill. Um, he wants his money because Chevy says, Who, "Who's that money?" And he says, "It's, it's not yours." Um, Interestingly, he says it's not yours, but he doesn't say it's yeah, his. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me a bit of um, I don't know how much you're, sort of, you're familiar with William Friedkin's films, but <clears throat> that's the theme that you get in Friedkin's pictures. 
you know, in, in the, the French connection at, at the end where Popeye Doyle sort of runs off into the distance and he sort of becomes the one with the prey. Um, to live and die in LA, 85, I think that was, where at the end of that, John Pankow becomes William Peterson's character. He sort of dresses the same. He wears these cowboy boots and, you know, he's been a straight-laced copper till that point. And then he becomes the, the sort of the rogue, hard-boiled, cynical cop that, that William Peterson, who's been killed um, quite... Uh, that's a massive spoiler for To Live and Die in LA, actually, because it comes out of nowhere. But um, I love that film. At the end of Cruising, you know, uh, Freakin's Cruising, we're cr- uh, cruising, sorry, Cruising. That's a different film. Uh, Freakin's Cruising, I don't know, I'm thinking pruning. I've got some pruning to do in the garden. Um, Freakin's Cruising, where Pacino becomes this killer, and, and there's that weird moment at the end of that picture with his girlfriend. Um, Nancy Allen puts on the, the sort of the. the, the, the the leather hat and, and that kind of thing. And also, <clears throat> of course, The Exorcist, which is a different genre, but, um, you know, where, where Damien Karras, Father Karras, takes the um, Pazuzu out of Reagan. He sort of says, come in to me, doesn't he, at the end of uh, 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 The Exorcist. And and, 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 and and the demon leaps into Karras and he jumps out the window, doesn't he, to sort of exercise it one, once and for all. And uh, there's that sense in freaking cinema of, of characters at the end, sort of antagonists and protagonists becoming blurred and overlapping. And, and this reminds me a little bit of that, of, of those freaking films. And, and uh, Colpitt said, <clears throat> quoting, the idea at the end is that they, Chevy and George, this is, become each other. They almost start dressing the same. George becomes Chevy, mm-hmm. become an alter ego of each other. And I think that's foregrounded for me. <clears throat> talk about the uh, evolution of Patty, but she makes a very astute comment later on. She's been quite naive up to that point. She mispronounces the le- Leaning Tower of Pizza, she says, doesn't she? And, and she's mocked for this kind of mispronunciations. Sorry, Mark. No, it just made me chuckle because I laughed at that in the film as well. Yeah, I think that's quite amusing. So. But at the end, she quotes Nietzsche, doesn't she? She says, uh, you know, he who fights with monsters should take care that he himself does not become a monster which is, of course, quoted Nietzsche. And and she kind of, you know, at that point, she understands that situation far better than these two men. Um, you know, this, as you said, this this character that we've seen is quite naive. She's been objectified and subject to ridicule by these male characters, you know, throughout the film. At that point in the film, that's the epiphany, isn't it? That's the, that's the moment of epiphany in the narrative, you know, that where the themes are stated for us. Um I mean, what do you think about that? That 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 sort of reference to Nietzsche, very on the nose, I think. I mean, not a bad thing. Doesn't isn't she reading it off the television as well? When it's she it, might you know, be, Mark. It's a yeah. subtitle. I don't think it negates it. Oh no, yeah, no, no, it doesn't. No, I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just. Like, I'm... The TV show seemed to be, was it like, it looked like um, Wheel of Fortune or something, because there's like a grid behind the guy who's saying it. But then I was thinking I think maybe it's, uh, maybe it's one of those evangelists. Or something. Yeah, one of them Christian channels. Yeah, yeah. Before, they have, don't yeah. I, again, that's... that's uh... that's sorry, sorry, it's just, it, that's interesting that the, that the wisdom comes from, you know, the television in a motel room sort of thing yeah, you know yeah. whether it's a tv show uh, a game show or <clears throat> or a uh, you know a christian sort of, with, with all the cor- kind of connotations of christian television and evangelism and things like that you <clears throat> know. yeah that's where the, the great wisdom comes from 
What's that? What's that famous saying? Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 tells the correct time twice a day, and I think, yeah, I think, I think there's that, isn't it? Um, I mean, in terms of you know going back to the production, um, you know, we've got uh, um, uh, 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 most of this was shot in, as I say, Death Valley, Nevada Desert. Culpit said the biggest challenge for the production was the lack of sunlight since the shot in November, and you can sort of see that. I mean, having made short films, uh, you know, been on the sets of those, you can sort of see that lighting matches are a nightmare. So you can imagine sort of that that being difficult. Um, and uh, Culpert says that the US, at the same time the US Army was setting off underground bombs in the in the desert not too far from where we were shooting, so there were lots of vibrations. And there's a smiley face on the email, but uh, you know I think that the the idea of that is you know these sort of nuclear bombs and these vibrations is quite is it, to me that's terrifying. But you know that's that's speaking from a a very British perspective, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There isn't an but, explosion uh, down the street every 20 minutes. No, exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the, the worst we get are the tornadoes flying over, aren't they? You know. And well, you I was going to say, I was, I was, yeah, I was telling <clears throat> Tammy that there was an air show once in, in Cleethorpes, and I was walking the dog on the field at the end of our street, and is it a Vulcan or some of the, the big bombers from the Cold War? Was it Triangle? Oh, yeah, yeah. One of those was flying, and it was far enough away that it was silent, and... Yeah. Because my I had an older brother that was delighted in tormenting me, he, he reminded me of every possible opportunity that we were going to die in a nuclear holocaust at any moment. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just seeing that, and just that just you your head, your head in the eighties, Mark. You won't know this, but you know the threat of nuclear annihilation. It was we did. Did you practice that at school, Pete? I, I've read uh, books. No, I think I think my brother did, but he passed it on to me. It's a bit like why I. I I like Queen, um, the band, because, you know, it wasn't my generation, but it was my brother's, so it got passed on to me sort of thing. I remember sort of, you know, if the bomb drops hide under the desk and, and there's those sort of leaflets about um, when the wind blows kind of when the wind, Yeah, when the wind blows. Those leaflets, I remember my dad coming back, or my mum coming back from the library, one of these leaflets that says, you know, if, if the nuclear bomb's going to drop, you can take your door off, paint it yeah. white, put it at a 45-degree angle, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And you'll be safe. Mm. <laughs> you think, oh, the nuclear yeah. bomb drops in that. I'm not going to be safe. <laughs> That's the I've seen threads by that. Point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. yeah, I made Tammy watch threads. That was... Uh, get slapped off topic. Yes. But the, the idea with nuclear bombs is just... It's, uh, for, I, think, I was raising that generation where you were mm. terrified of them, so... Um, sorry, Pete. You were saying something else, I think, and, and I, I, I have interrupted you. Yeah, I can't remember now. Right. <laughs> I, I suppose um, just just going briefly back to that thing of the end um, and whether they swap places. For for me, it was whether they swap places or not. I, I suppose they are just there was always in the same place. I don't know. The, it, it for me again, like I said before, it pay sort of leaves the boys to it. You know, so they're locked in that manly, masculine battle over money or masculine identity or whatever it is, power, ownership, territory. yeah, territory. And they're just they're just locked in it. They're, they're like two dogs that are they're just facing off over each, you know, at each other over a bone. Um, and it, that's it. You know, the two dogs. You know, so they're they're one character rather than swapping places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that, there's that moment at the end where Chevy offers to fight um, George and he says fisticuffs. Mm. 
And this is a, a little mano a mano, George. You know, and it says, I'll, I'll even tie one of my arms behind my back, half a man against a full man. You know, mm. so that, that great moment there, which kind of reinforces that, isn't it? You might um, as well have clucked at him. Sorry, sorry, man. You might as well have clucked at him, called him a chicken. <laughs> That's why I begged at his feet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, but you know, Colpert described the 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 film as uh, as I say, it was. He said he I wasn't too much aware of the neo noir genre. I saw this more, or he saw it was more of a road film set in the Western landscape, a European's fascination with the West, plus a flair of Sergio Leone, and um, Sinkovich mentioned Leone as well. But but I, I think uh, for me, this reminds me quite a lot of uh, Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas, and again, that's a very European sort of art film, but set. In the American West, isn't it? Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Robin Muller's great cinematography in that. It's Robin Muller, isn't it? It's one I've, I think I've, I've vaguely seen, but one that I've always wanted to revisit. Yeah, you yeah. should revisit that, Pete. I mean, mm. it's an incredible film. I mean, I, I like Vendors generally, anyway. But uh, but this kind of reminds me of, of Vendors, Paris, Texas, but much more genre oriented. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, a, a key part of Paris, Texas, of course, is the score by uh, by Cuda. Um, you know, and I think we've got. Um, I don't know what. What did you feel about Barry Adamson's music for this? Um, I think I don't know. The, the, for me, it sounded like um, it felt like the music was supposed to add maybe tension um, in the little stabs where it comes up. It's quite an avant-garde score, I think, in many ways. Yeah, I think it's. I think I was listening maybe, to the... maybe an intrusive score. I don't know when it comes oh. like like when them little stabs of music come up. Yeah, um, I, I just find I mean, that they they distract me a lot. I think. Yeah, again, with that, yeah. that moment with Patty looking out the back window, you know that that reflect. I think that echoes what you say in there as well, Mark. That. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't find them to be as tension building as what I think they were supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to the Adamson score on, on CD uh, the other day, um, and uh, sort of quite. There's a lot of different motifs in there, and, and there's sort of a, a bit of uh, Morricone style sort of music in there. There's there's uh, some mm. An, an Arabic sort of riff in there. There's a, a you know, these, and, and Colpert said that, uh, you know, in terms of the score, they sat down with Barry for a few days and discussed the use of the Hammond organ, uh, which crops up, doesn't it, again, in, in the picture. You hear the, the Hammond organ, very distinctive, with Paco de Lucia guitar riffs. And uh, they were very aware of the Morricone scores uh, for the Leone films, but wanted mm-hmm. to score, uh, wanted our score to be more sparse in its instrumentation. It's, it's quite, I think it's quite, it reminds me a bit of um, a stupid comparison, perhaps. I know um, it reminds me a little bit of John Cale's music. You know, John Cale from the Velvet Velvet Underground, some of his solo stuff afterwards. Um, uh, I do like it. I like that kind of music. You know, uh, past life. As I've said previously, um, I was in a, an orchestra, so I kind of. Um, I get a bit sort of nerdy about music, but I, I think it, I think the score works work quite well. I think it's quite evocative. I think, but very um, sort of avant garde. It's not not a typical sort of film score score. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of a it's 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 um, like an, an avant garde album, 
uh, score, if that makes sense, any sense whatsoever. Probably doesn't, but uh, um, but particularly you've got the the use of uh, 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 that cover that that um, uh, oh, uh, yeah. by Adamson of, of these boots were made for walking. Yeah, I did ask. Yeah, and I did ask if that was in the script, and, and uh, you know, Colpier said that it was in the script. Um, it was Patty's theme song. Um, and he he, just, he says that the connection between Patty and, and, and that son is that, that quote she's a quiet Patty is a, a quiet survivor that doesn't reveal her moves in in contrast of what Chevy reveals, you know she she sort of uh, she um, hides a light under a bushel perhaps that'd be a good way of describing it, it was quite biblical, um, but uh, yeah she doesn't reveal necessarily what her moves are. Um, and uh, you know, at the, at the end, of course, she she's uh, she's got those very distinctive cowboy boots. I'm looking at the mm. poster right now, you know, those very sort of red, florid sort of cowboy boots, which it, it connects to that, doesn't it? And I, I often wondered whether that was in the script, and it, of course, it was that connection there. Which I think that was released as a single, wasn't it? Um, signal single, <clears throat> sort of 1991-ish. Uh, I think you might be too young to remember this, but I think, I think it was a. I think I, I seem to recall hearing it on top of the pops, but I might be wrong. I well, I mean, again, look at thinking of, of, of odd comparisons. It, it reminded me of uh, Tank Girl, the film. The film oh Tank yes, Girl. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I sort of uh, I asked uh, Sinkovich about the the photography of the film, and and and, and Sinkovich said that the making the lighting consistent was the biggest challenge for the exterior scenes, the Death Valley scenes, and also the tight space in, in, inside the can. He says, I, th- I think I used a snorkel or periscope attachment shooting over the dashboard to get those sort of in-car scenes. I, I, those, those shots, though, because a lot of the movie is spent on that sort of really tight shot of them in the car, I think that helps to... Um, <clears throat> that more than anything i think that's what makes the movie so tense in places doesn't it because they're all squashed together in this little car and, and the camera's in there as well it's very and claustrophobic it's, isn't it's, it? yeah it's very stuffy and claustrophobic and you can tell they're all hot and getting on each other's you know on each other's nerves a little bit but no i, I quite liked that that those shots where it's just them in the car and yeah i mean quite a lot of the film as well no yeah, I imagine it's hard to sort of keep that dynamic and not make it too static. And and uh, Sinkovich manages that really well, I think. You know that sort of single well, sort of location. The cat. Sorry, Mark. Well, they switch places a lot, though, don't they? Where each they do, each yes. In so you know. Do you know what it reminds me of? And and I probably showed you this when you were studying. Was the um, that sequence in Jaws? You know, where you've got the three characters. And you've oh, got I don't. I didn't pay attention in any of your lessons. <laughs> 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 But the, the the move around, you've got obviously Robert Shaw and uh, Scheider, Roy Scheider, and, and um, help me, Pete. Um, Hooper. Oh, oh Hooper. Hooper. Dreyfus. Dreyfus. Yeah. Richard, yeah. No, sorry, I do apologise. Richard Dreyfus never listened to this, but <laughs> but you've got those three characters on the Orca, and they sort of move around, don't they? And when, mm. when the ship first sets sail, and it reminds me a lot of that, and and how sort of. Um, Butler and, and Spielberg made that interesting, visually interesting, and I think Sinkovich and Colpiet do something similar in Delusion, because you, you've got them moving around the car, and, and some of them, you know, at one point Patty's driving, at another point George is driving, Patty and George bickering behind, Patty and, and Chevy are bickering behind George, then later on it's kind of uh, uh, Chevy and George bickering as Patty's driving, and, and, and then 
you've also got these canted angle, these Dutch angle shots as well. That, and and, and I think you know, uh, you know, managing to make that sort of limited sense of that limited locale, that limited sort of setting visually interesting. I think the film does that very well, um, yeah. and particularly through the use of the widescreen as well, which kind of um, again reminds me a bit of Jaws. But you know, the man, the way that you can get all three of them in the frame at the same time, and uh, um, I, I mean, you know. Uh, uh, Delusion was shot on Super 35, which is a bit of a, I don't want to say dead format, because most celluloid is, is considered a, a dead format these days, of course, uh, with digital photography. But uh, but Super 35 um, is, is a three-pair format, which which uh, enables... The, the final image on the negative is, is sort of about 1.78, 1.75 to 1, I think, in, in terms of ratio. Um, but Super 35 uh, is designed uh, uh, to be matted to 2.35 wide in the cinema, but you can also unmat it, open, present it open for full frame TV, which is, again is a dead format these days, isn't it? Um, but uh, when I first saw Delusion on BBC, late night BBC TV, and then on the American VHS, um, it was in four to three. It was um, full frame. Um, uh, the version that you guys would have seen is the 2.35 widescreen uh, version, which was uh, a sort of a TV uh, um, broadcast, same as a laser disc. Um, but uh, there were lots of other films shot around that era that were shot in Super 35. Um, uh, speaking of Tarantino, I think most of our dogs were shot in Super 35. Terminator 2 was shot in Super 35. Black Rain. Um, was shot in Super 35. So, you know, it's quite a popular format because at a time when filmmakers had an eye on both the theatrical release, widescreen theatrical release, and TV or VHS release broadcast, um, uh, you know, it's quite a convenient format for that because, like I say, you could mat it to 2.35 for the cinema and then open it up for um, to 4 to 3 for, for TV. Um, but uh, Sinkovic said that the Super 35 format was, was chosen for... Um, along with Agfa uh, negative for, for mostly budget reasons. But both Sinkovich and Colpier like the widescreen format because that sort of fit the desert landscape. There's a great quote from Fritz Lang in, um, I think it's, uh, I'm getting a bit obscure here perhaps, but in Jean-Luc Godard's um, adaptation, Le Mepri, um from the, the, the novel, uh, Content, sorry, the Jean-Luc Godard film Contempt, which is a sort of well, behind-the-scenes film from the Alberto Moravia book, uh, Moravia, who wrote The Conformist. But uh, uh, there's a great quote by Fritz Lang in that film where he says, uh, he's, he's sort of played himself as a filmmaker, and um, he says that, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, widescreen is only good for snakes and funerals, I think, which is a, a sort of a wonderful line um, about sort of widescreen photography and films. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but I think it works very well in the context of the desert uh, in this, you know, that, that sense of widescreen to get those three characters in the frame of the car, the widescreen desert landscapes and so on and so forth. Watching the 4 to 3 version on, on television has got a, a very different impact. Um, but uh, Sinkovich said that they didn't have anamorphic widescreen. That wasn't affordable by the, by the budget. Um, but uh, Sinkovich also said that shoot, shooting in Super 35 is great fun because the aspect ratio leads to interesting compositions and blocking, but it has a tendency to show grain when it's projected on the big screen because essentially you're sort of blowing up a, a crop of the, the, the negative 
for a cinema exhibition. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're shooting a film in Super 35, uh, you know, you have sort of two. Um, I think the ground glass viewfinder, I think, would have the two, the four to three version and the 2.35. So you have to sort of make sure they're both safe, if you like, for for, for, for the, both of those formats. Um, but like I say, you know, it's, the film's been rarely seen in that widescreen version. Other than the laser disc, and I think maybe a TV version on, on American TV, um, uh, you know, over here, certainly it wasn't shown in cinemas. Over here, it was in the UK. Um, the first time, um, I think the first public sort of exhibition would have been that BBC broadcast. Um, and Colpert said that the film had a great festival run and had a theatrical run in, in the States. Um, he said, we should definitely cover it. Sony to do a widescreen Blu-ray transfer. He said, the film looked amazing in the theatre. And I watched uh, the film on the projector at home. And it does, I think the photography is, is really good. I think it's beautifully shot. Um, you know, Sinkovich said, I mentioned the Laserdisc in the uh, email to Sinkovich. And Sinkovich said that the, the Laserdisc version made it by a bigger TV because of the, the proper widescreen ratio made it too small to watch. Um, and if you imagine, probably... Again, Mark, you're too young, you're whippersnapper. But, you know, back in the day, you know, there was uh, four to three TV sets. Watching a widescreen film on them was, was quite a challenge, wasn't it, Pete? You probably mm. will attest to this. Um, these days with the uh, sort of widescreen 16 to 9 sets, it's not so much of a, a, a sort of a difficult thing. But, uh, but yeah. Um, um, and I asked about the storyboarding and, and Sinkovich said that, that Copy had a very specific visual idea. He says, I think it was storyboarding. Sinkovich says, I always prefer prefer it to that way um, to be storyboarding. Sometimes he makes his own storyboards. But there were a lot of changes on the set, basically, because they had to figure out how to block and cover the scenes on the day. Um, you, know, call it, you could call it freeform in that sense. But he says the dialogue was very much written and kept that way. So the, the, the dialogue is very much what you see in the shooting script, apparently. You know, in terms of uh, sort of... Uh, Closing statements. Does anybody sort of have anything particularly that they that sort of leak an impression that that, leave, that they are left with by the film? Perhaps. I think. Um, I think it, it for, for me that it it developed really really strongly, um, and and some of that stuff that 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 you end up learning and you end up experiencing things. I um, I think is great. Um, after, if, Watching the first part of it, you know, I was thinking, "What? Well, why is Paul making us watch this?" Homework. <laughs> <laughs> but but, um, but no, you know, I think where it ends up is really, really interesting. Yeah, I think there's a there's an evolution. I think particularly, like we say, in terms of Patty's character, I think which makes it, it quite interesting. And I think, you know, I, I would I would end on that that great quote from uh, Chevy. Um, you know, towards the end of the film where you know it highlights that theme of uh, I suppose what you call toxic masculinity these days but he says uh, I go back to Robert Hardy and the territorial imperative and so on and so forth but Chevy says to George why, why do guys scratch their balls George because it itches or because it feels good mm-hmm. and I think that that sort of sums up those two characters very well and, and uh, you know how uh, 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 Patty separates herself from from that that sort of environment i think and that mentality um and then... i don't like that line the, the the ball scratching line because i was sat with the wife and i don't want her to know why we do it 
<laughs> I think it's a mystery, isn't it? I think it's yeah. both the answer to so that. I, I still, to this day, try and convince her it's because of the Richie. You know, it's, the, the women don't need to know that. Well, I, I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why, and, and you can edit this out. But the reason I was scratching my balls earlier this week was because uh, my my wonderful fiance put Richie powder in my uh, in my trousers. Which... Yeah, I was having a bath and she threw a stink bomb in the bathroom, and then when I got out the bath, she put itching powder in in my trousers. You two are certainly made for each other, aren't you? Oh dear me. You remember specific instances of scratching your testicles. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not editing that out. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's got to be recorded for posterity. Um, so uh, with that, I think uh, we shall say uh, farewell. Yes. Thank you very much. It's good night from you. him. And it's good night from him. <laughs> what about me? <laughs> yeah, and him as well. <laughs> And I think we should reiterate sort of thanks to Cal Colpier and, and, and Sinkovich and, and uh, Callum Kaplan for answering our, our questions. I think it was very gracious and, and very much appreciated. I think it's provided a, um, a better insight as well to the film that that we could have we could have given. Well, I think to be fair as well, like I say, it's it's an, an under discussed film. I think. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of information out there. Sadly, yeah, to find anything, yeah. Yeah, sadly, it's um, barely been released. I mean, I know over here, I know in America it had a theatrical release and, and uh, sort of laser disc and so on. But you know, I think, I, I in my opinion, along with the crew, um, which I think is is equally good, um, I think it desperately needs some sort of uh, DVD or Blu-ray or even a streaming version would do. Do you know what I mean? I think it's uh, it's one of those pictures that I'd love to see in uh, because it's so well photographed. I would love to see it in HD. I think in high def. I think it cries out for it, and uh, yeah, I think it's a shame that it's not not available in any of those formats. But uh, hey ho! <laughs> you should write a letter to your MP. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll leave it at that. I uh, I I used to work for her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, well, we shall. Uh, was that before your time, Pete? I I remember you talking about this before, and I think you should definitely leave it there. <laughs> yeah, we should leave it there. I should stop right, recording. Someone else's MP then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs>